there's two types of billionaires in the, in the world. There's one that just hoards a bunch of money, and there's the other kind who's actually impacted a billion people. And that's why I feel my legacy will end up being. It may not take the form of a browser or a piece of code or whatever, but I think that I plan to leave the world in a way that is positive ultimately. To say Robert Hansen, a.k.a. our snake, is a man of impact is an understatement. He applied his hacker skills to expose pedophile networks in his early 20s. He was responsible for the authentication, anti-fraud systems and anti-phishing technologies at eBay, technology that's now built into every modern browser, protecting every internet user as a result. He built the most secure web application security hosting platform in the world at Falling Rock Networks. And he is now providing a window into an otherwise unseen world through his podcast, The R Snake Show, where he has nuanced conversations, the kind of discussions normally reserved for behind closed doors, with people who are actually working on important and meaningful issues. Robert's on a journey to positively impacting a billion lives, and to leave the planet slightly better than when he arrived. This is a long episode, but it's an important one for anyone concerned about the threats and risks we face in today's world. We cover Robert Serendipity's start developing his hacking skills, building a hacker alliance to take down pedophile groups, his philosophy and approach to solving problems at an architectural level, Robert's perspective on online security, risks and privacy. We also discuss potential damage from insulating children from risk. Robert describes the threats posed by China's CCP and their thousand grains of sand strategy their creeping social credit system, and the growing threat to Western security. He also explains hypersonic missile technology and quantum cryptography. I then ask Robert about his top three existential threats, and I seek his perspective on guns and the historical context of the Second Amendment and on Americans' right to bear arms and the emerging solutions to gun violence. On a very personal level, I also ask him how he overcame depression in his 20s. For anyone interested in gaining deeper insights into our fractured world and the risks we face, this episode is unmissable. Robert, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be sitting face to face. I know. It's been in, like a week or two. <laughs> a week or two from meeting you, but it's wonderful to be actually interviewing someone face to face, not screen face to face. True, true, true. <laughs> so it makes a, it makes a real difference. I think so too. So let's just um, timestamp this. It is a Monday afternoon in a hot, hot end of June uh, in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. We find ourselves sitting here. And I probably should start by saying this isn't going to be the traditional type of Impossible Network interview where I follow this typical sort of story arc through someone's life from their sort of upbringing, the impact of their parents all the way through to education and then what they're doing with life because you just don't conform <laughs> to, that, um, <laughs> to that type of arc of a journey. You've had a much more circuitous route to where you are today and where you're going, both of which are utterly fascinating and we'll get into. But just going to say from, you've got a podcast yes. you started recently called The R Snake Show, yes. uh, which you, and I f- should give a shout out to Chris Beck, previous yes. guest that recommended that we speak to you next. Not He's my producer. Yeah. He's your producer and fantastic guest in his own right. And when he told me about the podcast and recommended you, I thought, wow, that's fascinating because it opens up so many different directions of how you could take an interview. But having met you a few weeks ago, and we'll come on and talk about where we met and how, Mm -hmm. um, and having spoken to you, you're clearly a very big picture thinker and you've, your domain experience is clearly in the core of security Mm -hmm. in the security space. Again, we'll come on and talk to, but you're so that domain experience and also your broad knowledge and curiosity 
And what you're doing with the podcast does make you this perfect person to discuss many of the important gnarly issues that face us as a society, as a country, as human beings right now. So I think because I've met you and because I've got a sense from listening to your podcast what you're like as a person, I'd like you to start by just explaining a bit about your moral compass and how it was formed and the code of ethics that's guided you through life. Sure. Because it's clear it comes across that you really do have quite a, a strong code of ethics. I'd like to think so. Uh, <laughs> obviously, everyone falters from time to time. But yeah, I I grew up in a kind of a world where it was a no-nonsense, no-bullshit sort of world. And I really respected that. A lot of you know, engineers around me and farmers and people who just knew how things worked and, you know, you do it the wrong way and things break. And so I kind of grew up with the, there's a right and a wrong way to do things, not from a moral sense, just there are, you know, programming, there's a right way to program this and there's the way that will fail. One of the reasons I love computers. But when it came to people, I actually found it pretty difficult initially to understand what they're like and what they do and don't like and whatever because I was an only child and I lived on a ranch and the only people I interacted with were adults. A ranch in Texas. Actually, this is in California. And later on, I, I had his friend and he's like, you know, you're one of the smartest people I know, but it's so weird. You don't know anything about people. And I I always knew that that was true, but but hearing, it, hearing him say it out loud was actually was hard on me. I'm like, oh, I better head <laughs> start thinking about how people actually work. So- I doubled down and started understanding a lot about how people work. Everything from social engineering to how they interact with things. What age would this be? I was just entering college, so in my early 20s, maybe late, late, late teens. And I realized that I, I not only did I not know a lot about humans, no one knew a lot about humans. There's so much to know. Everything from what makes them choose, you know, this type of you know, dessert over that type of dessert or why they choose this type of mate or that type of mate or what sort of makes them tick on any given level. I'm not just talking about, you know, from an economics perspective, but also just what gets them up in the morning, what motivates them. And I I started realizing how little I actually knew, but but looking around at my friends, they also didn't know very much. With one exception, one of my business partners, one of my oldest friends, Something happened at one point, and I think we were discussing it, and it was it was sort of a it was sort of a bad situation. But he looked at me, kind of dead in the eye. He's like, you know, Robert, if anyone ever does anything that surprises you, that's your fault, not their fault, mm-hmm. because they were always capable of doing whatever it is. You just weren't imaginative enough to know that they were capable of doing that. That's your fault, and that tiny little crevice just cracked open the human condition for me. I finally just started understanding people. I'm Mm -hmm. like, aha, okay. And one of the very first things I wrote when I was uh, first coming up in the hacking world was a Trojan horse. So I broke into a whole bunch of people's emails accounts and I started reading all their email. And one of the things that I realized very quickly is that everyone's lying and cheating and stealing. And these are people, this is long long enough ago that people didn't really realize. Were these your peers? Yeah. Yeah. These are long enough ago that these people did not know that, hacking into email address was really a thing. They didn't know that that was even possible. So they weren't taking the kind of preventative measures that you might see today. And so I was able to learn a lot about the human condition. Presumably before there was the prohibitive so- software that's built into tools that give yeah, you a warning oh yeah, this is or way before for phishing that. and things like that. Oh, yeah. No, and and this is 
this wasn't even a phishing attack in the traditional sense. But anyway, um, so I probably read about a thousand people's email over the probably six months that I was doing this. And I did a a bunch of password research, which was useful to figure out the kinds of secrets that people choose when they're trying to choose a secret. And from there, it, it just really helped me understand so where people are pattern, coming from. There are patterns. Well, of course, there are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, as sort of a as a gag, when I was first coming up and learning how this all worked, I would uh, go to parties and kind of try to guess the pattern that people's passwords were just based on what I knew about them. And you know, I was sometimes I was pretty right, but sometimes I was way off. This one time, I guessed it almost to the exact password. I'm like, and there's this girl and I'm like, okay. And I, what I knew about her, it's like, it's your pet's name. It's probably a dog. And it, it probably has two letters after, and it's two or four letters after it. I'm guessing it's two and it's probably like your birthday. It's probably like 80 or 81 or whatever. And her eyes got insanely large. Like I had just guessed <laughs> her actual password. And so, yeah. And I think that once I realized how fallible and broken people are, that's when I realized I really need to help them. They don't know what they're doing. They are, they're broken programs, just like a broken program on a computer or something. And they need a lot of help. They don't know what they're up against. They don't know that people like me exist. They so don't when know you that- said they need help, help with security mm-hmm. or help yeah, at the time, security. emotionally and psychologically. That as well. But, but I wasn't prepared to handle that part. I mean, a minimum now I had done enough psychological research on them having read all their email that I know the kinds of patterns I'm looking for. I know what people are really like when they're not, you know, putting on their best face mm-hmm. forward and like a podcast, like here, here and now I'm trying to put my best face forward, but, or meeting someone for the first time at a party or something like that is not what people are actually like at all. People uh-huh. are much more complicated and interesting. Actually, I, f- I find them much more interesting. So I started spending a lot more time getting to the morality of what the right decisions from a technical perspective would be. Like, if I have to make people click on 20 things to do the right thing, is that the right moral decision? Or should I make it right up in front, like the very first thing when they're first logging into this application? It's like, are you sure you want to do this? This is the bad thing. Like, I'm trying to protect you. These UI decisions shaped me a lot. And I realized that there's a lot of companies out there that are working against the the embitterment of the population. And the more I learned about it, the more it frustrated me because I wanted to help people. And uh, I think that was the beginning of the end for me in terms of, you know, just being a good capitalist. I think I had a lot more heart in me than I think most people were realizing. Hmm. You could have become very cynical because if you're exposed to the, the raw reality of people's character that's hidden behind that facade, that initial facade, and your youthful naivety, let's say, at the time, and then you suddenly see the reality, it could have taken you down a very different path. And for a while it did. I'm not going to lie. So I started a group called Ethical Hackers Against Pedophilia. So we took down, at the time, the largest bust in history at the time. And now Innocent Images does 100 people at once, like over and over. They're you know, they totally got us beat. But so that was part of it. I learned a lot about how unbelievably terrible people are towards children and sort of what what drives them. And you have to learn a lot about your adversary if you're going to do that. So I learned a lot about my adversary, not just that type of adversary, every large scale criminal organizations. And, you know, I, I learned a lot about the real human underbelly. But then also around the same time, just slightly before that, I had a girlfriend who I was pretty sure was cheating on me. 
And so I hacked into her email address as the very first and last time I've ever hacked into a girlfriend's email address. And of course, she was cheating on me, which you know, should not become as a surprise. And then I confronted her about it. And I, it just it seemed like the dumbest thing in the world to me. And she, of course, denied it and pretended like it was I was misreading it and all this stuff. And, and I realized at that moment that I should just trust myself. Like, I know I'm intuitive enough a person. I know enough about the human condition, especially at that point. I've, I had finally read a lot of people's emails, so I could see the signs. I knew what I was up against, and I knew I, there was no point in breaking into her email address. There's no point. And at that point, if I don't trust her, why would I trust her anymore if I just hadn't fi- Does that mean that she didn't cheat on me just because I didn't find anything in her email address? You know, so uh, I started trusting my gut a lot more. And um, yeah, those two things made me quite cynical for a while. But coming out of it, you know, after I quit EHAP and, you know, coming out of that breakup and going through some pretty severe depression, having to think about child pornography all day is, is pretty intense. I would not recommend it. You were doing this when you were what age? Early 20s as well. So maybe 21 ish. So you were still in college and still. In college and just out of college. Yeah, that time frame. I, I had actually left college uh, my junior year. Yeah, I do not have a degree, by the way. And I think I failed out technically. <laughs> it's a rite of passage, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah I think, dropping out of college. And, yeah, geez, it was terrible. But uh, just a question on when you said you, you created the ethical hackers against pedophilia. How did you recruit other people to that movement? Quite easily, as a matter of fact. Um, my dad once, uh, we were watching the movie Sleepers, and he's like, you know, why doesn't, why don't you do this? Like, why aren't you out there, like, stopping these guys? And I'm like, that's a good point. I had never really thought about it. And so I met one other guy uh, who went by the handle Chalk, and Chalk and I started breaking into these pedophile groups. And and then one day we hacked, we were trying to hack into each other because we were both undercover and we were trying to break into each other. And I think at that point we realized we needed more help. So I sent out a, a email kind of plea to this old hacking group that doesn't really exist anymore called the Happy Hacker Digest. And we got about maybe 20 people to join us just off that one email alone, some of whom are to this day the best hackers in the world. They're insanely good. So we, we managed to pull together a very good team very quickly. What makes a good hacker? Very ingenious, able to think like the adversary. I mean this in a pleasant way, flexible morals. I don't mean that in a negative way. Somebody who can think beyond where you are and where you need to go. Somebody who isn't necessarily willing to read other people's description of how things work and then take that as a gospel. Just assume that everyone is fallible. And once you assume that everything's a little broken and, and probably written by someone with the best intentions, but seriously has no idea what they're doing, you're much more likely to get to the truth. And that tiny little thing, that little gap in the way the world works is how the rest of my life shaped up. Turns out no one knows what they're doing all the time in many different dimensions, not just in computers, you know? So anyway. Was so it you that was telling me about that book, The Basic Laws of Human Stupidity? I don't think so. No, maybe not. It's a very short book by an Italian guy that was written probably about 25, 30 years ago. Yeah. And it's brilliant because it, it, it puts it into different quadrants of type people, of people that are stupid and they damage to themselves, but they don't do harm to others. People that are malicious and malevolent and do harm to others, but are also harm themselves. And the ones that are, um, I suppose, psychopaths and all where they would fit in the spectrum. It's really fascinating. It's a really nice, good read. Mm. I recommend that. Um, just a question on that, the, the, the hacking. Because from what 
I mean, the little I know about it, and from what you hear in, in the media, you hear about things like phishing attacks and, and ransomware and how people get access through bad software that's been coded you know, in backdoors and things like through Windows. Is that what you relied on, or did you have other mechanisms where you went for people's weak points, like you said, you identified passwords? Because if you're going to a paedophile group, presumably, they're very protective about what they do. So normally really any pathway in is fine. It doesn't really matter. However, with pedophile in particular, it's it's a, a toxic asset. So I wouldn't recommend, really would not recommend anyone do this today. But at the time, the government had a policy of if you even have one piece of child pornography on your computer, it's game over. It, you're, you know, you've broken the law. So we had to work around that by doing all kinds of crazy th- things just to prevent images from even reaching these computers, which was very difficult, But by the way. But you're absolutely right. Um, the group that we were working on at the time was something called Pedophile University. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a dual name, like we'll teach you how to be a pedophile, but also here's where you go to go to school with children or what. Anyway. Oh, my God. It was, yeah. it, was, it was really bad. And so they were an all-encrypted news group at the time, which back then that's that that actually is saying something, that they already had this level of sophistication. So everything was encrypted except for people who were new. So people who were new, obviously, they needed to be trained. So, you know, people would give them guidance on how to start protecting themselves and, you know, the right type of encryption software to use and so on. And so the way to break into them is listen, just listen for a long, long, long time. And occasionally they screw up. Like one of the guys, I was the one who actually broke this case open. One of the guys said, hey, you could, uh, you know, be on my street. Hell, you probably live right next door to me. And what I realized, I couldn't figure out why he was saying that for a while. And I realized, oh, wait, the other guy isn't using a VPN. He's not breaking in through, you know, some other machine. He's not using some dial-up network somewhere across the country or something. He is probably doing it from his house. And the other guy is looking at his IP address and going, hey, that IP address is right next to mine. And so that's how we broke the case open. So sometimes it's just paying really close attention and little, little errors here and there. Oh, okay. Well, let's take this down a slightly different direction. So that <laughs> you you didn't enjoy that one. <laughs> well, no. I mean, I've I've heard you talk before in other interviews about pedophilia and also the the two people that you interviewed recently, Joe Scarmucci yeah. and Pen Parish, who was at the when we met mm-hmm. recently. Mm-hmm. A fascinating and terrifying interview, and recommend that anyone go and listen to that one if they want to understand this of the insidious nature of of these what's going on and that the the great progress that people like that are making but it's yeah it's it could be a podcast in its own right as i absolutely agree yeah so yeah so combination of that realization of what people are really like and also being exposed to how you can get these images out of your mind i can't even imagine at that young age as well i can picture it as i'm sitting here right in front of you yeah and yeah, I can't. I wouldn't want to even have it described because as soon as you say it, then it, it unleashes your imagination. So we'll leave that aside. Yes, I did hear you talk about your dad before, and him. You mentioned the fact that he talked to you and, and challenged you and said, "Why aren't you doing something about this when you watch Sleepers?" Mm-hmm. But I also heard you say that he gave you a book called "The Secrets of a Super Hacker." I have a nightmare, yeah. Which sounds like it could have been this, the great serendipitous moment of your life, your dad doing that. Yeah, it could have, could have been. 
and that that did set you on the path you've been, which, as I said at the start, has seems to have been many sort of incarnations from security. You've been an entrepreneur. You've worked in corporate life. You were a great innovator at eBay. You worked at security at White Hat, and 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 today you're you're doing your podcast. So it is hard because I normally start podcast say, well, your life in, but there isn't a life in. But but when I think about it, it's you come across as this autodidact and, and a polymath. You have many interests and many skills. I mean, how would you, what does drive you to keep you going forward? Because you could stay in that track of just saying, kind right, of, I'm a security expert. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've interviewed a couple of security experts before and that, that's what they do and they've become very good at it. But you're very good at it, but you've also expanded your horizons. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very much self-trained. I, I really did not have particularly good mentorship. So no one was sort of sitting over me giving me like these long-term pieces of life advice or where I should go or whatever. And I, I think I truly stumbled along in my career for a long time. Just had no idea where I was going, no direct path. I was pretty depressed early on. And I remember this conversation I had with a, a friend of mine many years ago. He's like, well, no matter how depressed you are, you could just go to the beach and be a bum on the beach and your life would still be great. And so I really took that to heart. I'm like, okay, I got to make this work. I got to just find some path through this life that was good for me, not just because someone else wants me to do it, not just because I've been in security for a long time and I should just continue in security, but I got to find something. And so the thing that I focused on first was what I call choke points. There's these big choke points on the internet, things like browsers or choke points. If you fix one browser, you've now impacted more than a billion people. If you fix the way internet protocol works, you've now helped a billion people. If you fix the way DNS works, a billion people plus multi-billion people now. I think that I realized there wasn't really anyone thinking like the way I was thinking. And that was a problem, a big problem. And I felt like I was the only one at the time who was really thinking about it more from an economic perspective. Like, where is the minimum amount of work I can spend to have the maximum amount of impact? And so a lot of security researchers focus on bugs, which are things that are wrong with a system that can be changed by some minor change. Mm-hmm. You know, you change things to look for a boundary condition. And by checking for the bounds, then you're not, then something that should be 50 bytes is in 100 bytes and the 100 bytes would have done something bad. Now it does 50 now it's 50 bytes, it doesn't do the bad thing, and now the whole thing is fixed. Usually those types of bugs can be fixed in a few lines of code, mm-hmm. almost always. The kinds of issues that I focus on are called architectural bugs. They're bugs that are systemic, and they're large enough that you almost have to rip and replace the entire technology stack to even start. Or you have to make a fundamental change to the way things work in order to secure it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I... For a long time, I was attacking architectural bugs in the browser. That was where my first focus, my my main love was. Just to contextualize that, mm-hmm. when you were doing that, presumably it was when Internet Explorer was still the predominant browser. Correct. Yep. And that's where Microsoft have armies of engineers doing exactly what you said, is working on the small few lines of code to fix. Right. Small things. And and most security people were focused on those bugs. Now, I'm not saying I'm not at all diminishing the work of the security experts who probably poured, you know, hundreds of hours in any one of those bugs. They're very complicated. But for me, I might spend 20 hours on an architectural bug 
And unlike Microsoft's bugs where they go in and they fix them with a couple lines of code, might take them a couple hours and, you know, maybe a week or two of triaging and maybe a month or two of QA before they finally launch it, whatever, a couple of months all in. These architectural bugs would stick around for a decade and they know they can't fix them because by doing so, they really break a lot of stuff because the internet already back then is enormous. And so gradually... I think that people start realizing. I remember I was at Microsoft one time uh, since you mentioned them, and they were they were handing out these T-shirts with all these bugs for that year on the back of them, all these things called CVEs on the back. And so I'm looking at it, and the woman handed it to me. I'm like, "Oh, which ones are mine?" And she looked at it, and she actually had them all memorized, which is really amazing that this woman had that in her head. But she's like, she's looking through them all. She's like, "Actually, wait, literally none of these are yours because everything you find are architectural flaws, and they don't get CVEs." So she's looking at me like, should I take it back? You know, (laughs) I'm like, no, that that's even more reason I should have this shirt because the types of things I find are so bad. You can't even put a number on them. You really, you literally have to change the way browsers work to fix the things that I'm finding. No, I'm going to take that t-shirt. And that's kind of how I live my life. I focus on these very big, hairy, complicated problems that either people are totally blind to or. Once they see them, they're like, I, I just don't think we can, I don't think we can fix that, or we're not willing to fix it yet. It's going to be an enormous forklift upgrade to fix these things. And So when someone creates, well, Google, obviously, Chrome, which was, I think it was an ac- acquisition originally, wasn't it? Well, they, they, they picked up Chromium, yep. But then if you look at recent innovations in browser, in browser I'm just taking browser because you're mentioning it, something like Brave, or I think even the ex-head of search at Google has launched something called Neva, which is a new search engine. I think they've even got their own browser they've launched as well. Are these are these types of innovations addressing the sort of architectural issues that you would have spotted early on, and that they're therefore they're they're more secure, they're they're better? Or? For a long time, Chrome was much much worse than IE. Then it slowly got better. So I would say, or let's say Mozilla with through the, the Firefox. Well, let, let me let me back you up a little bit. So when I first started really getting into browser security, it was when Netscape was still a, barely a thing. And they came into my office and they sat down with me and they said, okay, Robert, we got this great idea. We're going to make it so that if a website is untrusted, like you've never seen it before, you get the the gecko rendering engine on like most secure mode. If you, which is what now you think of as Mozilla, if it's if it's uh, sorry, if that's on a malicious list, if it's unknown but not malicious, then it's Gecko with it's fine, like it's like normal mode, as if you're just using Firefox. And if it's known, like eBay, which is where I was working at the time, then it's green. So l- let's show you. You go to eBay and it's green. And I looked at them and I'm like, this is the absolute worst design of a thing I think I've seen in <laughs> the history of browsers. You're basically telling me, as an adversary, all I have to do is find an exploit in any one of those things. And then force your browser to go to that, find one thing called a cross-site scripting exploit, which was extremely common back then. Across what? Cross-site scripting exploit. This is a very, very common exploit. And eBay had a ton of them. And I can send you this specially crafted URL and fire off this thing, and now your browser's compromised. That it, You just made it much easier for me to do my bad thing. Wow. And they looked at me like I was on crack, but also like... And so my follow-up conversation with them and then eventually Mozilla was what I need from you is a way for if I'm eBay, tell you to not trust me. You you trust me, so let me tell you to not trust me. 
because that's what I really want you to do. I want you to have it in the maximum security mode. And that eventually became something called content security policy. And now that is something that and is every browser on the face of the planet. Every browser is now protected due to this technology that I helped innovate. So how different is that to an SSL certificate? A SSL certificate is more about protecting the transmission of data. It's not really so much about telling the browser what it can and cannot run once it's on a website. So what I mean by that is, uh, let's say I have some malicious widget, like a you know uh, a movie or something that is corrupted and does something bad to your system, you know, installs some malicious stuff or launches a PDF and that PDF is corrupted and it breaks in your computer or whatever. Well, Shouldn't I be able to tell the browser, don't run PDFs on this website? Just don't. If you ever see one, it's put there maliciously. Don't don't run it. Uh, whereas SSL TLS, it, TLS is the more current yeah. version of it, is more about the transmission of data. So if I'm sitting in a, an internet kiosk and I want to reach out and uh, you know connect to my bank or whatever, I want to do so in a way that somebody at the internet kiosk can't read that data in transit and potentially modify it. Isn't that a VPN? There is such a thing called an SSLTLS VPN that uh-huh. does exist. Traditionally, it used to be a little bit different. They used to be kind of totally separate, and now they're close. Think of SSLTLS uh, in the browser as more like a ad hoc VPN with a company with whom you have no prior relationship to. Uh-huh. But a VPN typically is with somebody you have a relationship where you they have given you a certificate that you put on your computer that certificate only works with that VPN provider and they will not recognize you unless you have a certificate. So it's a it's a more draconian version of an SSL TLS connection. Okay. So the thing that you developed with for Netscape and for eBay was called what? Uh, well, I didn't develop for them. I told Mozilla to go do it back when there was 13 people in an office and it smelled like feet. So this is Mark Andreas uh, and, and his, <laughs> his, his younger years. Uh, I... I got to tell you, that was a that was an interesting experience. I was working with a guy named Gerv. But anyway, I sat down with Gerv uh, and Rafael Braun and a couple other guys. And I'm like, okay, what I need from you is to fix this old Netscape model. This is a terrible design. I need you to do the exact opposite of what those guys did. It's funny because my boss at the time when I was at eBay, he's like, because I was working on the anti-phishing stuff as well for eBay. He's like, okay, I need you to put anti-phishing stuff in the browser. And I'm like, I don't even know what, I don't even know what you mean. He's like, call Microsoft, get them to put micro, put them in the browser or call, call whoever, call the browser companies. I'm like, call, just call up Microsoft. I don't even know what you mean. Like, what is there? They got a 1-800 number for like call <laughs> of Microsoft and ask them for favors. But sure enough, I, I called around and I got in touch with some vice presidents over there and they were more than happy to talk with eBay and like, what can we do for you? You know, cause they want to be the, the reason why people use Internet Explorer is because it works well with eBay. And I told them, hey, I need you to put anti-phishing stuff in the browser. And they said, okay, we'll do that. And so that's why you now have anti-phishing stuff in your browser. I had the same conversation with Mozilla and they said, well, that sounds like a great idea. Someone should build a plugin for that. And then we people can install it. I'm like, nope, wrong answer. You got to do it. And then Chrome came along and they saw what Microsoft did. So they built it and then they just gave it to Mozilla. And so now Every browser on earth has anti-phishing stuff built into it because of that conversation I had with Microsoft all those years ago. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Okay. Let's broaden beyond just computer security. Be good. The risks that we're facing today in the security of our society, and in its really its broadest context, is the, the focus of your podcast, The R Snake Show. And let's just say The R Snake Show, that is your, what would you describe it, your handle? Is it your... The R Snake is my handle. Yeah. Handle, Yeah. 
that you use on what one would have been as a hacker or yeah, like Twitter? Yeah, back in the day, like IRC was an old, old way that people used to chat back in the day or bulletin boards or whatever. Yeah. And that was it. Okay. So you're diving into these really complex subjects with, a, I suppose you'd call them domain experts themselves. Ideally. Yeah. To have, um, as you've described, much more nuanced conversations, the conversations that aren't really happening in society at the moment in real life and online, around many of the social, socio-political or technological challenges that we're facing, particularly in the US, but also in the broader world. What was it that led you to feel a sense of urgency to do this and to have these conversations? Um, I feel like these conversations do happen. They just happen very intimately in a very bespoke, you know, location where no one else can hear or over a quiet dinner or, you know, in a conference room where no one else gets to see what's going on. And I'm invited to all kinds of crazy conversations. And it, I found that always very strange where I would try to explain to people what's going on in the world. And people would just look at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, I wish you would could be in the room where you, you, you could see this person saying what they're saying because you're in serious danger and you just don't realize it. And I've actually been kicked out of campuses before because they thought I was, you know, too, uh, you know, off my rocker and, you know, they've lost hundreds of millions of dollars and they probably should have listened to me. But when I started looking online at what was going on and the lack of political discourse of a nature that I thought was more in line with the kinds of conversations I was having, which were dramatically different than what you might see in a meme, let's say, they're much more complicated and nuanced. That was pretty concerning to me because I think we all should be paying attention to what's really happening out there as opposed to what you know, some media outlet wants you to believe. And then secondly, I had a, a very close friend of mine. He was the um, little brother of James Cameron, the producer. His name is John Cameron. He was one of my best friends. Uh, he died fairly recently. And out of that, I, I just, and I lost another friend of mine as well, a Navy SEAL, a friend of mine, a 20-year Navy SEAL, Scott Brower, really, really great guy. Uh, both of them were giants, both physically and just how they presented themselves. And, uh, uh, John was an ex-Marine and super brilliant, 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 brilliant guy. Just uh, hard to explain, you know, just uh, innovative in a way that most people just would never, ever be able to even understand, let alone, you know, mimic or or um, take advantage of or whatever. So the problem was when they both died, they didn't leave anything behind. Like, I can't go and find anything on Scott Brower. I mean, he was a Navy SEAL. He was all very quiet. From what I have, I have memories and that's it. John, you know, all of his notes are locked away in some vault somewhere, you know, and at Lightstorm Media or something. And I, I'm never going to see any of it. And there's a lot of genius that's been lost. And not that I am calling myself a genius, but what I mean by that is the thing that makes them them is now not just gone in the sense that they are dead, but I can't even find the echoes of them. Mm-hmm. Was that a deliberate decision by Scott not to leave a footprint? I would have to assume yes. I mean, you know. Because a lot of Navy SEALs have been quite prolific with their media um, yeah, yeah. exposure. Yeah, he was, he, he, was, he was an interesting guy for all kinds of reasons. So I, I don't really know his reason. But the most recent photo I could find of him was probably from 15 years ago. You know what I mean? That it's he's that hard to even find stuff online. There's a couple of articles written, you know, kind of in passing that it's something he said. And 
some some advertisement he was involved with where he, he looked like Santa Claus. <laughs> it's just you really can't find anything on this guy. And same thing with John Cameron. And he was prolific, an insane writer. He was writing all the time, and I I have none of his writings, nothing nothing to go back and reference. So, and he was one of my best friends. So I spent a lot of time talking with both of them. I mean, I would talk with both of them, you know, at least multiple times per week, if not daily. And so that was, that was my big impetus. I realized the thing that I bring is not necessarily my ability to break into things or my domain knowledge of ancient, you know, problems in browsers or networks or whatever. That's not particularly interesting to me. That's not it. What it is, is the people that I know. These are... These are the crazy things that I value. These are the things that I I feel like if I'm gone, people really lose all of that connectivity because they don't know each other and and they are not well known and you can't search for them. And even if you can search for them, you're not going to you're not going to know what I know or why that person's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, I started thinking I need to change that. I need to rectify that in some way. I need to have, you know, something like a blog post or I really loathe the idea of writing yet another book that's just going to fall on deaf ears. I've written a couple now and you know, just it, it's hard to have those types of conversations. Those weren't in the wheelhouse that I'm talking about, but, but even my, the book that I liked the most, what, maybe a thousand people read it, a couple thousand people read it or something. It just, it's just not, it's not what I want. And it doesn't solve the problem of the long-term connectivity of these multiple people that are otherwise just totally unknown to the public. Mm-hmm. So podcast it is. And so I have started having these really important conversations with some of the people I know or the people who are around those people I know, very similar to the conversation we're having now, but more focused on one specific topic um, with the intention of drawing out a hard answer or or something that they, they may not even be proud of, you know, the things that they have to say. But maybe they need to say it. Maybe they got to get it off their chest. Maybe it's cathartic. Maybe it's important that they realize that some of the things they work on is maybe not the best. And sometimes these are, you know, absolute heroes. And Mm -hmm. people should actually hear from the people working in this field, you know? Yeah. When you say that these are conversations that they may not be proud of having on... How do you I sort of zero in on what the, the specific area is that you want to draw out of them? Depends on the person dramatically, right? Some of them are, you know, more social issues. Some of them are more technical, you know. Ultimately, it all has some bearing on everybody everywhere. They just don't necessarily realize that. I, th- I think gradually over time, I think that'll be more and more apparent that everything I'm talking about is more big picture and not, I'm not so interested in this individual. I mean, obviously, I care about them. They're friends in many cases. But I'm not so interested in them or or the positives or negatives that would happen from them being on the podcast. What I'm really concerned about is everyone else, everyone who doesn't know that these people exist and who isn't working in this field and has no context for how important these people's jobs are, what they're working on. Well, let's take one. We had a really interesting conversation with uh, three individuals who are an organization called Salient, mm-hmm. where... I learned a lot where you were really looking at, I suppose, lobbyists and how lobbyists influence and impact the direction of policy at state level, even a federal level. And you talked about PACs, 
political action committee. Political action committees, yeah. The new, and you, I think maybe you said it or a friend, someone said it to you, that, and you asked them the question is, why don't they promote more mainstream candidates over the radical extreme, where the radical extreme, both on left and right, seem to be the ones that garner the most support at the moment <laughs> in this, this polarised world that we're living in. I mean, that was an interesting one. That one felt it was slightly different to the others that you had. What is it you think needs to change to draw people back from these polar extremes? And what did you, why did you pick them and what did you learn from them? Well, I think people have a not necessarily incorrect view of what lobbyists are and how they think about things, but I don't think they understand the, the, the absolute lengths that they'll go to to get things passed and the complexity, it, how much work it takes to get these things passed. In Texas in particular, it's designed to make it onerous. And other states less so. I mean, it's a little easier to get things passed. But in Texas, they're doing everything they can to make it hard on you. And these guys are pros at navigating that context. Now, believe it or not, I have plans to have two more lobbyists on the show at some point, maybe even this season, working in different areas. And they were interesting because they're focused, they're more the kind of cutting edge, the, 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 they're the new crop of lobbyists who haven't been highly jaded by the industry. They're focused more on the innovation side, the technology side, you know, space, science, technology, you know, artificial intelligence, blockchain, the kinds of stuff that are just emerging that there just aren't laws for yet. You know, these things don't exist yet, or they barely exist, or they're terrible written by people who don't understand what's going on. And wouldn't it be nice to have somebody in the room who actually knows what they're talking about? So that's really what they're focused on. But I think that having a conversation, and I feel like they were the primer. If you don't understand what they have to say, you're never going to get the next set of lobbyists that I'll bring in and why and why what they're going to say in, inevitably is changing policy worldwide, not just, it might sound like they're just local, but it it, it is anything but. Um, I think that if you really pay attention to that, you'll see that I'm, I'm, I'm stress testing them on how bad the legislative policy process actually is. And they, I think they start off, you know, having a little bit of like, oh, it, they have a pretty good idea how it works. And then by the end of it, they're like, yeah, this is all messed up. And that, that was really my goal of that. And I, I knew I would, I could lead them to that trough. You know what I mean? I knew I could get him to drink, but not, it took a while, you know, it took an hour or so just to get him to the point where they're like, yeah, this law is horrible. And how did this happen? And now they're starting to brainstorm with me on like how these terrible laws come to ex you know, exist. Uh -huh. And presumably the people that they work for, that they're lobbying for, are organizations, interest groups that want something legislation to happen. Of course. For their own vested interests, not necessarily for the betterment of society. Of course. Or for the state or for the country. And I think, I think any sober person can look at them and go, wow, that is not a kind of person I would probably want, you know, taking care of my kids. Like that is a total opportunist. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, people get caught up and, and as I say in the UK, get your knickers in the twist about <laughs> decisions by Supreme Courts. Mm -hmm. You'll say the Ferrari that occurred last week with overturn of Roe versus Wade. But sure. what's really going on there is a, a, a lot more poisonous to society. And in this uh, this dark underbelly mm -hmm. of politics, as you say, that people don't really have any sense of what's going on. And there's no one shining a light on that. No one. I think it's important. And I happen to know these people. And I'm like, you know what? I need to get these people in front of Because what's going to end up happening is someday I'm going to be dead. I'm just like JD. I'm just, just like Scott. I'm just going to 
fall over dead from some reason. Mm-hmm. Probably polonium. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <Nufa> choke. <laughs> <laughs> and that the day that happens, I need there to be some way for people to go back and say, who were all these people? How do I kind of reconstruct this body of knowledge? Yeah. And if you don't know the people I know, you have no you have no chance. And so that that's really what this is about, to answer your original question. How did you describe the, you, the way you look at the, the architecture of your hacking, not in the small lines of code? Mm-hmm, the you architectural. Said, you're doing the same thing mm-hmm. yes. for this as you're doing of course I am. for that. Mm-hmm. It's, the same, it's the same principle. I'm going after the bigger things that people that y- you must assume, people must assume these things exist or think about them mm-hmm. more abstractly, but I actually know the people doing them. I know the people who are changing the world that have, I would say, otherwise benign jobs. You know, their job is going to schmooze people and get them to agree to something. That's kind of a benign job if you think about it. But the ramifications of it, the ripple effect is enormous. Yes, indeed. Um, I would like to just get your perspective on, on youth and the importance of risk in people's life. And I mean the environment that children grow up in. Because it seems to be that we're living in a very increasingly, what feels to be a much more dangerous world than it felt in 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. And we have a generation, um, many of them have grown up to a large degree insulated from risk, conditioned to expect this sense of safe space, uh, emotional or psychological safety, avoiding the real risks through more skewed use of maybe online and media, as well as a way that maybe their parents and their cultures have given them the sense of safety. Yet, at the same time, we've got these unparalleled levels of anxiety and depression that are being exhibited, particularly post-COVID. It's like pulled back the Band-Aid on that. So I'd, I'd love your perspective on that. Are there things we can do to give the youth of today a greater sense of, look, this, the reality is the world is not a safe space. Yeah, you might want a safe space, but it isn't. And you better get used to risk. But what can we do from an educational standpoint as parents and as educators to change that that balance? Because it feels to be a bit screwed at the moment. I don't think anyone's going to like my answer on this. So I'm, I'm a little hesitant to even say it. Well, I think we need to take all the rubber away from playgrounds. I think we need to take all of the, the safety you know labels off of things and treat things as if they are what they are. They're objects and sometimes objects are dangerous and, and kids need to get hurt. Kids need to be made fun of. They need to run into things and they need to experience putting their hand on a burner and, you know, all the things that give you context about what the world is really like. Mm -hmm. If everything's rubber and everything's protected and no one ever has any, um, nothing to worry about. And, and frankly, Video games give you a very skewed version of the world too. And a lot of kids are just playing video games. Yeah. And I don't mean that the, the world is hypervigilant or violent rather. I mean the exact opposite. They can look at the video game and they're like, well, the world world's nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Nothing like that. There's no part, nothing about this is realistic. But yet you go to some places in the world and it is very much like that. <laughs> oh, you just, I mean, you don't even have to sort of pick shoot them up games. If you just look at something like FIFA, even just something like a soccer game. The reality is when you play soccer as a kid, you get kicked. Absolutely. <laughs> you get you get elbowed in the face. Yep. You break bones. You injure yourself. You get in fights. That's all part of it. 
It's all part of the game of people winning call, and losing. People call you all kinds of terrible names. Exactly. But if you're conditioned by playing FIFA, you know, that's a, that's a warped yeah, I, view I, of reality. I love soccer. Well, do you? Do you really love soccer or do you really love watching it in the comfort of your home? Yeah. Um, yeah. I really think that we've done a massive disservice. I think HEPA filters on air conditioners. I think, you know, having every single step be the exact right amount of inches, mm-hmm. you know, the having building codes where the light switch is always in the same place and always perfectly insulated and yeah, I mean, we've made society a little safer in the in the most short-term, you know, protecting an, an individual from the existential threat of nature is pointless and dangerous, I think. Mm-hmm. You're basically teaching them that they're invulnerable and yet any time they know full well that any time a real threat happens, they've never been tested. Mm-hmm. They don't know what real pain looks like. They've never been punched in the face. Yeah. They've never tripped over anything because everything's level, you know? I mean, there's all these like things you just learn through a bit of adversity that when I look at you know, kindergartners or whatever and the play playscapes that they live on or whatever, it's like the worst that they're ever going to get is it might be a little hot because the sun in Texas and yeah. that is it. There's nothing to hurt themselves on. I mean, you really have to work at it to hurt yourself on those things. You'd have to jump head down into the plastic stuff underneath it. And even then you would probably just bounce off because it's made of rubber. It's a little disturbing. I grew up in a very different world. I grew up on a ranch. And if you cut yourself, well, you probably had 20 minutes before you got back to the house because you were nowhere near it and you'd just be bleeding. And yeah. so you better have some gauze with you if, you're, if you want to protect yourself, maybe some duct tape to wrap it up. Otherwise, you're just going to have to hold it and just walk real quick back, you know, keep your heart rate low so you don't bleed out. <laughs> I mean, a very, very different lifestyle, I would say. Okay. No. Well, I I think that's that's good just to cover that off. I mean, we'll there's another element to that when we'll come and talk about guns, but that's a little bit further down the line here. I heard you talk about one of your other going back a little bit to security. You did work with someone called Jeremiah Grossman. Yes. At I believe White Hat Security. Yeah, I've worked with them a couple of different times. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, technology and any sort of technology space is a is a is a moving sort of palette of innovations and sort of steps backwards, steps forward. What's changed, do you think, in the last 10 years? Are we in a more risky space in the technology risk space, security space than we were 10, 15 years ago? I think it's approximately the same, which is to say it's terrible. It's been terrible. I think it's still terrible. Um, It's just that things have evolved a lot. Now, firewalls are pretty ubiquitous. Back then, a little less so. Now, antivirus is pretty much everywhere. Back then, it was pretty much nowhere, et cetera, et cetera. So those things are all better. But now we have a lot of new technologies, and those technologies are kind of crappy. And people have very weird ways of thinking about them and think... The modern crop of security people that I see coming out are not particularly good. Um, Is that due to the education system? Maybe to some extent you could blame them. I, I, I don't think so. I think it's primarily because the people who are doing it now aren't doing it purely because of passion. <clears throat> when I started, there was no job in security. There was no, you couldn't go somewhere and get hired in security. There's no, that wasn't a, that wasn't a job function. Now, every company effectively, any, any large company anywhere, probably has a security department of multiple people and a CISO and a director of engineering who probably does Chief security risk stuff. officer, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And probably four or five people in IT that also double as security people. And, 
know, there's a pretty big security cohort in any company. And um, that's a problem because what ends up happening is you, people are joining because of the pay. They're like, oh, this pays really well. Well, yeah, that's true. But they don't join with the knowledge. They join right out of college because everyone's looking for these people. They need 20 people to fill these roles. So they get the cheapest, quote unquote, best people out of these universities as they possibly can. And you end up with this cohort of people who have no life experience whatsoever, let alone security experience, and no passion for it. They just kind of went into it because of the money. And the people who are actually good are all aging out. They're all like me. They're becoming executives or CEOs or you know, starting their own thing or whatever. That's a big problem. You have a massive brain drain. And there's a massive conflict between the chief information security officers of companies. Um, they are really not incentivized to do a good job. What they're incentivized to do is make a couple of resume building big projects complete, which usually can do about a year, year and a half, and then leave. And then in that time period, if they get hacked, they can blame it on the previous guy. And if they leave, well, they're already gone. Hmm. I was speaking to... Um a previous guest, Manish Walter Puri, who was at one point has his own consulting company, but also was a uh, head of cybersecurity for New York City under the last administration. And he was talking to me about human behavior. And he said, you know, it's all very well. You know, all these companies, everyone's having to hire these specialists and put in these new roles. At the end of the day, he said the real big, the biggest challenge that companies face is humans' laziness, engineering behavior change in making people much more savvy. Just the basic things like dumb passwords and not clicking on links and emails that people don't think, think twice about. Is, is, that really fact, is that really fair? Or I don't like blaming users for technical failure. There are lots of ways to prevent people from clicking on stupid links. There's lots of ways to enforce good passwords, especially inside companies. It's a little harder when you're talking about consumer stuff. But if you're in control of your own enterprise and you can do whatever you want, otherwise they don't get paid to come to work anymore. Like, sorry, if you're not willing to use our second factor authentication system, you can go find a job somewhere else, sir. You can enforce whatever rules you want. And so I, I don't buy that. But I agree Humans are an enormous factor when you're designing security systems, and that's probably more something I would get on board with. Okay. And what about the, the likes of where we hear, maybe we'll come talk about when we talk about the, the risks coming from the CCP in China sure. and what they're doing. But when you get to the level of quantum computing where all cryptography can be just broken immediately, is that is that something that worries you? Yes and no. So I have a number of friends and i also have spent some time working in quantum quantum cryptography specifically cryptanalysis um and there's two schools of thought and i'll tell you both just so you know no you can make your own decision one is that it's as xi jinping said it is a super weapon it is the most powerful weapon that has ever been developed because it effectively allows you permanent and complete access to the telecommunications of your adversary. Uh, there is no way that they can prevent you from being able to see what you want to see. Okay. That's one way of looking at it. And if you go down that path, effectively every single thing that we'd ever want to transmit over the public internet, not private internet, but public internet is now interceptable by the Chinese Communist Party. That's one school of thought. And the second school of thought says, yes, while it is theoretically possible that someone could decrypt something with it, 
first of all, you have an enormous decoherence problem in quantum cryptography where the bits just don't stay adhered to one another uh-huh. for long enough to do anything. Like these these computers only stay active for a second or two at maximum, right? They're 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 up and they're down. And it takes something like 17 minutes or so for you to do the analysis. So while maybe you could build a computer that has, you know, over a thousand bits right now, I think the maximum they can do is 32 public one, I think, Mm -hmm. or somewhere in that neighborhood. While you might be able to get up to 128 bits or, you know, a couple hundred bits, 512 or so on, a thousand is quite a ways away. Even then you're talking about something where you might be able to use it a couple of times a day. You know what I mean? And that's an enormous engineering feat, and no one has proven it'll even work with the existing algorithm called Shor's algorithm. Now, back to the original idea, there are some people I've talked to in the crypto space who believe that that Shor's algorithm will be superseded by another algorithm, which has no name, or at least they're not willing to tell me. And if that is the case, perhaps we could get this time horizon down significantly. I don't know who's right. I don't know which one to believe, but either way, I think that it is very likely within the next decade that we'll see something that allows some nation state to do this. China is probably put the most invested in this. They are the ones who believe it's going to happen the most. I don't necessarily believe that they have any better researchers than us. They just have a lot more resources put into it, which, you know, tends to make things happen faster. I would say that if I were a betting man, I think it's unlikely that it's going to be the problem that some people believe it might be. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's on an international sort of a nation state scale. W- what can people do that, I mean, most people maybe bury their heads in the sand when it comes to their private security, their privacy. But the things people could be doing that they're maybe not doing, um, what advice would you give to people? the basics that you should be concerned with today? Well, it very much depends on how private you want to be. I I wrote a blog post many years ago, which would be very difficult to find now on White Hat Security's website called Privacy Personas. And I walked through, I think, five different personas. One being, you know, I don't care. I just don't care. Because a lot of people don't. They just don't care. In which case, you should do nothing. Do exactly what you're doing. And there's a basis, there's an economic basis for this on a Microsoft research paper they did said, uh, so long and no thanks for the externalities, a rational rejection of computer security, I believe is the name of the paper. And it was a very good paper, except for one massive hole in it, which I don't like, which is that it didn't account for the damage potential to other people's safety by virtue of you not taking your privacy seriously, which is exactly what uh, organizations like the Chinese um, CCP utilize with a piece of software called Million Grains of Sand. Um, so they they leverage the fact that you don't take your, uh, your security seriously to attack the people around you uh, or vice versa. So the uh, second persona would be something like, well, I'm willing, I, I'm aware that there's stuff that can be done, but I don't have time. I'm really busy. Give me like the two things or whatever, right? And for them, I would say, well, you could do the basics. You could um, use separate browser for you know sensitive information and one for just doing your dumb social media stuff and you know whatever, just searching the internet. You know maybe you uh, don't give out your personal email address. Maybe a different email address for personal stuff versus you know 
corporate stuff work and whatever. You know, there's things you can do. You're probably not going to do them anyway, just because I tell you, you know, but there's things you can do. And if you do them, you're probably going to do them wrong because you're too busy. But you know, that, that, that's a, a very common persona. People are busy. They want to care. They just aren't willing to do any work and so on. Right. All the way down to the, you know, I am a political dissident and I need absolute perfect security because if Mm -hmm. I don't have it, my family or myself are going to die. And this isn't playing around. I know what I've got and it is incredibly dangerous. For somebody like that, it's an enormous undertaking. It is not something you do trivially. Like for instance, you can't use the same computer that you use all day. You cannot take that with you anywhere, especially to the sensitive meetings. Mm -hmm. You can't take your cell phone with you. You can't even wear sneakers because those have... Like some sneakers have RFID chips in them. You can't take your wallet because those have RFID chips in them, et cetera, et cetera. Like you can't tell anyone we're going. You can't, uh, when you show up there, you can't inform people about where you were or, you know, connect those two things. They can't know who you are. You can't really use your own voice and on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And it's just enormous, complicated. You can't drive there, especially using your car. Uh, it's on and on and on. There's all these problems with being private. I have a feeling most people fall in that first couple of categories. They're not willing to do anything. And if they are willing to do it, they're going to do it poorly because they don't have time to do it right. But for a couple of things, for the people that maybe fall just on the edges of that second category and they want to do more and acknowledging the fact that we are living in connected homes, connected vehicles that you know, where voice, so much as voice activated now and biometrics is becoming more and more common. Should people, should people be worried about that? And should they be taking more stringent? Depends on what you're worried about. <laughs> if you're asking me whether I would ascribe worry to somebody else, well, I know that weird. obviously the majority of people aren't dissidents. But when you talk about for example, the the Chinese, the a million grains of sand, million grains of sand, which I don't know about, but you also hear things like solar winds. Sure. Well, you don't know, we don't know what's, you know, on our computers. Yes, I might run a, a virus scan, malware bytes or something like that. But for all I know, there might be other things that are hidden that are not being spotted. For the majority of people, though, that risk is probably quite low. If, I don't know what this Chinese one is and what it does. When you say it... Um, well, how about I just tell you? Yeah, that'd be good. That would be good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so the reason I know how it works is because the Chinese military was compromised by the Taiwanese military, and they were trying to court me to go work on it and other weaponized malware with them against China. Mm-hmm. So... Basically, how it works is it has an enormous amount of metadata across every single thing you can think of. So IPs and, you know, DNS entries and who is and all that technical stuff, but also, you know, where you were born and you know, your birth certificate and your social security number and anything that might be an indicator of who you are, where you've lived and anything, anything you can think of. And so the Taiwanese estimated that it had three pieces of sensitive information for every man, woman, and child in Taiwan. And they didn't tell me about the United States, but I'm, a, I'm presuming it's wow. the same or worse. Now, since then, and this was quite a while ago, this is, you know, pushing, you know, probably 15 years or something ago that I had this conversation with them. Now, uh, they have things like TikTok and they bought Grindr and a yeah, bunch of other, okay. you know, things that are now owned by, you know, Chinese interests. Uh, they also have, with a mix of Alibaba and um, and Blizzard Entertainment, they now have the Chinese credit core, uh, score called uh, Sesame Credit, 
So from there, they have all banking information in and out of China, so they know what people are buying. And I, I think that if you actually care at all about this, you almost have to just say, I'm not going to touch anything with any sensitive information, period, and treat the internet more like a toxic asset. Uh, utilize it only as a pathway to procure the very minimum amount that you need and basically stay off of it. Uh. The problem is, obviously, that's not going to work. And more and more things are getting integrated. Your your TV is Samsung. It's phoning home right now. Uh, you're, you know, you're using, as you surf around the internet, that's all like Picasa and Google Analytics and and uh, Google search and all these things are phoning home to advertisers. And you have to be more like the dissident than the guy who barely cares Mm -hmm. or has no time. If you actually care about this problem, because you have to be like Scott Brower, you have to have almost no internet presence whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, I'm consciously, I'm not, I still have use Facebook for business purposes to be part of groups. I have to just be part of because they force you to use that because there's no other platform that they seem to default to. But for something like TikTok, I've actively deleted my account on it because of after only using it maybe two or three times and realizing what a dreadfully sort of uh, addictive platform it is. Knowing that the Chinese have control them, regardless of what Oracle say about where the data resides are on the side of caution, but millions of people around the country and around the world are using it for up to two, three hours a day, yep. knowing full well that the content that they and their children are being fed is very different to what the Chinese are being fed as well. So it won't matter, though. Like we, we can do all the things that we want on our side, and it won't matter, because the problem is the Chinese social credit score will eventually consume the rest of the world. They think so. Unless we can come up with a real defense against it, I don't see why not. Their credit score or we'll have a similar credit score? Theirs. Because uh, right now, first of all, they're first, and it is a first mover advantage. But secondly, they're enormous, and we, the United States, leverage, and the rest of the world leverage them for all kinds of goods. Um, Effectively, anything that is made of plastic or, you know, beeps comes from them or or South Korea. That's it. I mean, (laughs) there's a little bit in Indonesia, and that's about it. And if we care about our gadgets and whatever, we're going to have to still work with them, which means that they're going to still have met all these big companies have going to have manufacturing there. They're going to have to buy their components from there, which means that they can exert power and pressure over the people there. Like, let's say I worked at some company and that was, you know, a buyer or supplier to or from China. Well, they can say, well, hey, you know, so-and-so person within China, hey, you're dealing, we know that you're talking to this guy Mm -hmm. who is actively anti-China. Well, you can't do that anymore, or you have to tell that company to get rid of that guy because the deal will go through, but you got to get rid of that guy. And very quickly, that turns into a lever that works against the rest of the world. And uh, I'm not imagining this. In fact, Canada already has some guidance on how to, to work with, work around the social credit score and the future of it. I just love this. The guidance was the probably the best path forward is to have somebody whose sole job it is, is to live in China and figure out what the government wants and make sure you're in compliance with that. Wow. That was, that was the guidance from a sovereign nation. And I just about blew my head open when I saw. Wow. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. But um, the problem is they're right. 
that is the right way to handle that. Um, at least, at least if you want the status quo, which is China getting more and more ingrained in, you know, the products and services that we, we leverage. So unless we can really divorce ourselves from China completely and just say they don't matter anymore and we'll do all manufacturing, you know, here or somewhere more Western. I, I, I think the only reason the social credit score works in China, or at least initially works in China, is because they have a very totalitarian regime where they can tell you that you're going to use it and you're going to go to jail if you don't. Um, but it doesn't really matter. It's not like they're saying – they're not like saying you're going to go to jail. It's not quite like that. And I, I kind of misphrased it. It's more like if everyone's already auto-subscribed, whether you want to or not, and that's something you're, the United States is not going to do just naturally. People really do not like that stuff, despite the fact that we're already kind of building things that people are getting opted into. But on top of that, then it's open. Everyone can see the answer. And by virtue of it being completely open and transparent, where anyone can go look at it, you're effectively able to shame any, any individual and say, hey, why do you have a bad score? Like, I don't want to be friends with you. If you have a bad score, you're going to take my score down by being friends with me. So I, you need to either change, get back in line, or I have to defriend you. And you have a network effect of that, and you don't need the Stasi anymore. You don't need, you know, jackbooted, you know, jerks with clubs coming over and beating the crap out of people. You just need enough people who won't go against their own self-interests. That's it. It's a wonderful abuse of control. Yeah. Yeah, it really is uh, taking us down a, I suppose, a 1984 meets Brave New World type of <laughs> type of space. You've talked about something I didn't understand, and I'd, I'd like you to just maybe explain it in relation. I don't know how it fits with this, sure. but in terms of the ethics of artificial intelligence, something you've co- you referred to as Roku's basilisk. Yeah. So Roku's basilisk is the if, if you've seen the Terminator and you've seen this massively intelligent artificial life form coming back in time and start killing people who didn't help it become the super intelligent being in the future. That's Roku's basilisk. It's something in the future deciding that it wants to harm people to make sure that it, it exists. There's so many problems with this idea that it's almost not even worth talking about. But the problem is like causality, for instance, <laughs> and the idea of going backwards in time, despite the fact that the world is moving through, you know, space and the galaxy and, you know, and spinning on its axis. And all, we have no telemetry to even know where the earth was 20 years ago or whatever. So anyway, the problems are irrelevant. The important part is what if someone's crazy enough to believe the Roku's basilisk is a real thing? What What might they do? Well, they might do everything in their possible to construct the basilisk, right? That's what they're after is building the basilisk, right? So Arsenic's basilisk, my version of it is, well, let's have one crazy guy with some basic understanding of chatbots and, and AI, not even particularly good, just, you know, run-of-the-mill stuff they can grab off the shelf, stuff that already exists today. Little bit of understanding of how malware works, but again, right off the shelf, not nothing crazy. And you say, all right, go. Try to make something that would resemble AI and ML that becomes super intelligent someday, right? It doesn't have to be super intelligent today. That's kind of irrelevant. You just need to be crazy enough to believe that it will. That's that's what I'm talking about, right? So this person could sit down and say, well, how about I weaponize the one thing that a huge chunk of the population have? Shame. 
It's the one thing that foreign militaries use pretty uniformly to get new assets. So if you find some shame lever, like, you know, someone's cheating on their spouse or someone killed somebody or whatever, right? You can leverage that shame and get them to do the bad thing. Well, in Roku's Basilisk, you don't need shame. You just need the threat of killing somebody, right? Like, you better do the thing. If 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 I come over with a gun, I'll shoot you if you don't do the thing. In Arsenic's Basilisk, all I need is the fact that you have some nude pics that you don't want to get out on the internet, which is a much lower bar. That doesn't require any human beings really at all. So gradually you can build up lexicon of shame, understanding what shame looks like, and you can find enough people who want to not have their nude pictures out on the internet who are willing to help you. And so those are the real, those are now your foot soldiers. Those people can do things now. They can install your malware on other computers. They can find more shame. They can produce more shame. They can pay to have the basilisk continue to run, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of things they can do. From there, you now have people and enough resources to continue to build the basilisk and make it better and better. At some point, any individual is going to run out of resources. They're not going to be able to install any on any more computers because they don't know anybody more to install them on. They don't have any more shame to produce because they've already murdered people for you or whatever it takes to get the maximum amount of shame out of them. They're not particularly useful for getting money out of because if you've already bled them dry. In fact, you kind of don't want to kill them. You don't want to bleed them out completely because you want them to survive because otherwise you lose your foot soldiers. So what are they good for? Well, one of two things. Either they're good at analyzing data as it comes in and saying that's true or not true. So for instance, one of the things that AI and ML needs the most is training data. So there, you can have people who are pretty much good at nothing except watching TV all day, telling you, yeah, that is a person or isn't a person, and helping the AI get better and better and better, right? But if they're technical and good, you can have them say, you could be good at, I don't know, how about building AI and ML? So making this thing better, getting me access to more databases, getting me access to more languages, getting me access to more cameras and database, like things that would feed into this global data set and grow it. And do the DevOps work necessary to keep this thing up and running and the fast flux DNS to make sure that no one can take it down and all these sort of things that would be required to make it robust. And suddenly, now this thing is really powerful. Like, it's actually very dangerous. It's become its own thing. It's self-sufficient. It's growing. It's getting more and more sophisticated over, like every day. Occasionally, someone will come along and say, I don't care about your shame. I'm not doing it. Well, you have somebody who committed murder yesterday that you got the shame on, and that person says, well, I don't want my information to get out, and I don't want to go to jail, so hey, person who just murdered somebody last week, go murder this person now, and so now there's the threat of murder, so now you can send out this threat of murder to all these people and say, well, this is what happens if you don't follow the basilisk, you will die, and here's proof, this person died yesterday or you know last night or whatever, and uh, people will pretty, pretty quickly fall in line or they'll die. In which case it grows and grows and grows. And now you have this monolith, this thing that is more powerful than any country and probably has more foot soldiers than any army. And uh, yeah, I think that is a much more realistic way to get to super intelligence than some guy in a computer lab, you know, focused all day on some Excel spreadsheet, hoping to get the right lines of code together. I, I just don't think that's wow. attainable. You've just given the algorithm to do it. <laughs> well, so where it comes into nation states is you can also do it through authoritarian regimes. You don't need to use shame. You could just force your population to do it. You could also do it through a religious, a religious uh, context. You could force your congregation to do the same thing. So there, I think there's other ways you could get a similar outcome without, without the arsenic's basilisk version of it. But I think all of those are a faster path. And I think that is a much more serious threat 
than um, than people realize. Okay, right. Don't know how to react to that. Actually, it's a, that's a really dystopian vision <laughs> for the future. But yeah, well, let's err on the side of positivity and that we're bending towards justice and and not just dystopian direction of the future. I think. It might be a good idea to go from that and talk about guns. Speaking of dystopian future. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think this certainly is a very divisive topic in the in the US, certainly at the moment, probably more so than it has been for, for a few years. And I should disclose, though, however, than I mentioned at the beginning, that you did kindly spend an afternoon uh, a couple of weeks ago teaching me the very basics of handling a firearm, a handgun, a wonderful place called The Range in Austin. I'm very grateful for that. And I went there with trepidation, came out feeling a little bit of confidence that I knew the basics. And so just in terms of that, and being someone that had never held a handgun or let alone fired one, it has been a topic of conversation with every, certainly everyone in my network I've spoken to, whether it be in the UK or in the US. And it, I think it's fair to say that regardless of what the, the media, the, the divisive media outlets say, which is whether it's left or right, um, everyone thinks it's unified that they don't want to see these mass mar- massacres of children happening in schools. No one, it's no one's interest, whether it be pro-gun or anti-gun campaigners. It's just not an event someone wants to see happen, nor what happened in Buffalo recently. But for many people that maybe aren't American, that don't understand the, the, the cultural DNA of how guns are woven into the fabric of American society and character, perhaps you could uh, maybe just explain why gun ownership and the right to bear arms is deemed as a fundamental, inalienable right to Americans. And we can start with that. Sure. I'll answer your question if you answer a question for me before. Sure. before yeah. How educated do you feel you were before you walked into the range versus when you walked out of the range? Compared to when you walked in and never having touched a, a loaded or unloaded pistol to having shot, you know, a couple of magazines with me. I had a certain, a certain number of assumptions about guns based on what I've been exposed to, both in terms of just media and you know, popular cultural, you know, the movies and Hollywood or whatever you want to call it. And from doing things like playing computer games and that, you just have this assumption. Therefore, I thought I knew a fair bit and I thought it would be pretty straightforward. But I was a little bit nervous about the idea of going in there and going, well, I actually have to have a loaded gun. Wow, that's going to be something else. So I... It was a completely different, though, to everything, anything that was in my head. I was much more nervous. I was, it was harder. It was more complex. It felt more risky than I anticipated. And I certainly felt much more informed than I was when I went in. But I now know that even the, it's like anything, once you know what you don't know, you realize how ignorant you are. So I still think I'm massively ignorant in guns. And wouldn't be a person that could be trusted to have one on their person or in their home or in a car, let alone in a car, because of the the stress that you'd be under if you ever had to come to use one. In a controlled environment like a range where you've got someone who's an expert, that's trained, that's confident, that's got you covered, like yourself, you know, I was like a kindergarten kid 
been put on a the training wheels on a on a bike that I see it as at that level so I'm I'm just at the foot of the learning curve yeah well I, I thank you for saying that my goal in taking you there was to expose you to something that I think the vast majority of the population as you said makes a lot of very weird assumptions about how easy it is like Hollywood is just kills me. They make it look so easy. You just pick up a gun, start spraying, and people fall over. That is just not how it works at all. So much more complicated. Guns are very, very difficult to shoot, even vaguely well, and and very, as you said, very risky. And I wish people would spend at least an afternoon with a... I wouldn't call myself necessarily an expert in the sense that I don't get paid to do it, but with somebody who, as you said, is confident and can t- safely take them through the process... Not because I necessarily want you or any one of them to have a gun. It's not what why. It's just so that they know what they're talking about. And it would be so much, I think we'd have a much more interesting, better discourse if, if that happened. So thank you for, for indulging me. To answer your question, I think that, uh, you know, I wasn't there in the foundation of the, of the country. So I have to understand what I understand from, you know, many, many other sources. But I take it to be the, the founding fathers assumed that a human the the most important right was to their own sovereignty. And the United States had just gone through a war. And it was not a particularly clean war. We really barely came out of that. I mean, we <laughs> if it hadn't been for the French, I pretty much think we would have lost. There's just no way. I mean, it was a very, very dangerous war for the United States to engage in, to start in, perhaps foolhardy. But yet, the French just wanted to hurt the English bad enough to make that happen for us. But we did. We won. We came out the other side. And in the ashes, the aftermath of a war is never pretty. And in this case, I think that the founding fathers were keenly aware of people's hesitancy to nation build or align themselves with you know a group of people with whom they may have never met and never would meet and somewhere distant sound lawful lot like a king and they had just come up from religious persecution in some cases there, there was a lot going on there that you have to sort of set the stage right and so they're thinking well two two things are true one no one believes that we're not going to come for them no one believes that everyone believes as soon as we get enough power we're just going to wipe them all out everyone thinks that and they're right to think that because that just happened to them in England coming over, right? They attempted to disarm people and, and destroy the country. So no one trusts us. And if we're going to build a nation out of a bunch of states, which were effectively separate countries, the only way to do that is to say everyone gets to keep their guns. Okay, first first and foremost. Secondly, we weren't sure that they weren't going to come back. <laughs> <laughs> we had no fair, idea. Fair assumption with English. <laughs> we Scots know that. <laughs> so having every man, woman, and child potentially have a gun, whether they did or didn't have a gun, is a pretty scary thought to a foreign military. You know what I mean? Like, woof, behind every blade of grass, there's somebody with a gun, right? So part of it was pure sovereignty. You need to be able to protect yourself. You need to be able to hunt. You need to be able to protect your land for which you actually own. That, that is your land. It is not the government's land to give you. That's your land, especially back then. Now things have changed a little bit in that regard. But And also, if we ever become huge assholes, you get to go kill us because you're totally armed. You're an armed populace. So you never have to worry about the government ever doing something crazy like what the king just tried to do. And that 
is the only way I think the states could agree, come together and agree that this was going to actually work. If it hadn't have been for that, if everyone hadn't said, okay, but we get to defend ourselves. It's like, yes, but we'll create a standing army. It's like, whoa, 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 you're going to do what now? Yes, 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 but you get to keep your guns. I'm like, okay. <laughs> as long as all of, as long as we outnumber you and we all have guns, fine. You can have your army. And that's the only way that the United States was ever going to be constructed. And I think the founding fathers were very sober about that. They knew that they were in a very dangerous situation and they were better together than apart. So I think that's sort of the, the DNA that kind of went into it. But then it comes down to, yes, you should be able to protect yourself. And the number one way for, let's say, a woman to protect herself from a enormous man coming through the door is a gun, it turns out. It's not using self-defense or karate or something. No, it's a gun. And so having some ability to protect yourself and your family from invaders, which, by the, by the way, this was not a land unoccupied by other peoples, too. We had Indians on the land, Native Americans who could easily come in and start, you know, literally just raising the, the fields and doing whatever they felt like to the, the populace there. So this wasn't just a threat against elk or something. This was a threat against actual human beings who wanted to come and kill them. And it was a threat against a nation that had just tried to invade and destroy them. So this, that's the, if you don't understand that history, you're never going to get further in the conversation. Okay. So given that the, I mean, the reality, the, the, just the cultural and the political reality of the states and the sheer number of guns, we're not going to see... Like 300 million guns now, I think. 400 million, well, I believe 400, now. Yeah. Good, all right. <laughs> uh, checking most recent. But it, it's, they're here. This, the, the Second Amendment isn't going away. So what, even accepting this, so the, the, there are going to be political decisions. I know that there's been a, a, a landmark bipartisan passing of legislation that Biden, I think, just signed off on a couple of days ago, which is a great step forward. But from your view, is there anything else we can do as a nation or as individuals or states just to reduce the incidence of what happened at Ivaldi? Well, bringing your architectural big picture thinking to yeah. apply that same sort of so, thought process. So one of the things I had, one of the guys I had on my podcast a couple of weeks back, a month ago or something, it's a guy named Josh Castell. And Josh has an idea, which I think actually could, mm -hmm. it wouldn't eliminate the problem, but I think it would help a little bit, which is empower and encourage retailers to stop selling guns to people who are obviously crazy. And the way in which you can tell they're obviously crazy can be privatized. You don't have to have the government involved in that, which means private citizen goes to a private enterprise who makes a business decision, which is, I probably don't want to be implicated in you murdering a bunch of people, which is a good capitalistic business decision, uh, irrespective of the morality of it. And you can even make money off of turning the wrong people away. If, if the system says, hey, this person's pretty crazy— we know that you would normally make money on this deal. We will pay you more than the deal is worth to not make this deal happen. We'll pay you to not be involved in something that's likely to end up becoming bad. Then there's a lot of there's a lot of hand wringing that could get be gotten rid of by virtue of just making a minor change to the process in which guns are purchased, mm -hmm. and that could be 100% privatized. The government doesn't have to be involved at all. 
and or the government could get involved in the sense that it could say there's less restrictions on certain things because we can tell these people are not crazy based on these metrics. Mm-hmm. Because there's no point in making them wait a huge amount of time if we can tell that they're this is this is the eighth gun that they purchased, but they've been purchasing one gun a year. This is just the normal thing. Mm-hmm. They always do this on their birthday or something like this person's obviously not going to go shoot up a mall or something. <laughs> this is just a boring run of the mill kind of gun nerd, you know. And by the way, for the people who don't know gun people, real true gun people are pretty boring. They 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 are not the kind of scary people that I think Hollywood likes to make them out to be. The ones that are scary usually just want one or two guns and they want to go to town with those one or two guns and they probably buy them within 24 hours of wanting to do the mass murder and you can tell. You can tell they leave a lot of fingerprints. So where is, I mean, I listened to the episode with Josh and it was interesting, but where do you think he is with making something like this a reality? A reality, yeah. You'd have to ask him, but I would suspect it's probably a year or more away. We got, we got some time before that, that would be a solution. So I don't think that, you know, if you're looking for a solution, like right out of the gate today, I don't think that would be it. I think the government really is focused partially, totally in the wrong place. I know this is going to sound weird, but if you look at the places where you see the most gun crime, they tend to be in places where guns aren't allowed. And therefore, that means that the population who is most likely to be there in the moment and be able to stop it are the ones who are least likely to be able to do that. Um, So you'll see this in major cities like Chicago, for instance. No guns, no guns allowed yet. Enormous amount of gun crime. And the reason for that is the population can't shoot back. So you're relying entirely on the police response time. And the problem with police response time is they they underfund them or even defund them. And so it's very difficult. To, you can't rely on the police if you have chosen to have less of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so th- this to me seems like a very simple economics problem. But, but don't um, you think that's going to change? I mean, I there seems to be a, a certain awakening, on the, certainly on the left, that maybe – and even Biden came out the other week – well, in the State of the Union said it's not defund the police, it's fund the police. and. You know, you look at what happened to the district attorney of San Francisco that was just voted out recently for not prosecuting people. I think there is an acceptance that you've got to need, even to protect the communities that are most at risk, they need, they want funding, they want to have protection. So maybe we're just, we've been in a, this unusual sort of space from post-COVID George Floyd and the other deaths that happened in the Black Lives Matter movement. And the, the reaction that went in one direction, maybe we're going to come back the other way and that common sense and the, just the reality of where we are with, with guns that, that you will look at what happened with, with the Supreme Court and acknowledging that New York can have open, ca- open carry or is it concealed. concealed carry? Yeah. So maybe that will happen in Chicago as well and there'll be next. And then that solution that you're suggesting will actually come to fruition i think it would be really wise because the very last thing a criminal wants to do is walk into a restaurant try to rob it and expect that two or three people mm-hmm. will shoot him dead mm-hmm. well the interesting thing that i think that I, again i can't remember if it was you that mentioned this but it was something recently i heard that you know the the all the news channels were covering Evaldi, but then very little coverage was given to the person that stopped the, the shooter the church, church shooting yeah was it at a church or was it at a, a kid's camp? I think it was recently. Oh, I, I'm sure there's been yeah, others. So there yeah. was a kid's camp a couple of weeks ago and it was someone there had a gun and they stopped the shooter. Are you surprised that I have no idea what you're talking about? Because it wasn't covered in the media hardly at all. Yeah, exactly. So that's it. <laughs> but that's, that's the thing. It wasn't covered. So yeah, I think there is a... 
there's uh, some th- there's something insane. I forget the number now. It's some it's multi hundred thousand crimes thwarted by guns, and that is not covered by the news. Mm-hmm. If it could realistically be done, I'd rather have a country without guns, but that's not going to happen. So why are there so many people that are trying to make that happen when it's just not a political reality? It's just never going to happen. This is a race to extremes. Um, I think the salient guy has probably said it the the best that I've heard. You know, before election, you know, before the when they're still in the primaries, there's this fast race as far as they possibly can to get the most left in this case or most right if if you know it's on other issues like abortion or whatever. And then right after the primaries, there's this race back to the middle to get the middle vote. And I think, you know, we're coming up on primaries uh, or have not have just passed it. And so there's a lot of that going on. And and so therefore, every single thing that comes out of these politicians mouth, it's the media. Uh-huh. So the press just talks about every single minor thing that these people want to say. And if it's kind of crazy, they might get out there. If it's super crazy, then they're going to start publishing it like Beto O'Rourke going up in front of the American public and said, hell yeah, we're coming for your guns. And if you talk to any gun owner who says, you're just going to come into my house and take my gun, what does that mean? What? Do, how are you going to do that? Are you literally going to send the police to my house to steal stuff from me? Mm-hmm. Like, you realize that's going to end badly. <laughs> <laughs> like anyone with a half a brain, you know, come in the middle of the night knocking on the door saying, I want your guns. You know, I don't care. I don't care what you say. That's a dangerous proposition. And I mean, it, all you have to do is look at things like Waco and uh, Ruby Ridge. And those are, I wouldn't even call them extremes. Those are just situations in which the people there didn't trust the government. Now, if you extrapolate that to 300 million Americans, most of whom already don't trust the government, doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on, and then you take them and say now they're gun owners. Mm-hmm. There is no way the handful of whatever it is, thousand ATF agents, and even with all the help of all the local SWAT teams, there's just no way. And by the way, those people are also armed at home, and they are also the kinds of people who wouldn't go after everyone's guns. So the idea of de-arming the population of the United States is is beyond silly. It's, It's actually just dangerous because it ends up becoming this weird rhetoric that's forcing a bigger division between people who frankly have a lot in common. You want gun owners as your neighbor because they're the ones who are going to get there in time. It's not going to be the police and you're not going to be able to hold someone with a gun at bay with your baseball bat. You know, it's, it's, it's very silly. So just broadening it out, I mean, you actually do peel back the statistics of it. 50%, 54% of all gun related deaths were suicides in the U S that was 2020. Now maybe there are other uh, contributing factors to that at that particular time, but 43% were murders, 19,000. And the remaining gun deaths were unintentional, and then law enforcement were 611. So the mass shootings is a microcosm of the total number, although the media attention gravitates to that and, and conflates it. But if the conversation has to be around, you know, how do you address the 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 issue with the suicides, how do you address this sort of the, the murders, the inner city, which is usually, as you say, south side Chicago. The facts do tend to point towards it being more black gang related or Hispanic in, in deprived inner city neighborhoods. Why are the polit- why are politicians not addressing these? Because surely those are things that 
both sides of the political aisle would like to see solved. Mental health issues that drive people to death, gang-related economic disparities that lead to disenfranchised youth, no economic opportunity. You know, the list you can go on. These are just the externalities, the resultant impact of these other factors. So it's a very, very complicated answer. I don't think it's something I could do quickly. I think it's it's a number of factors. Number one, it the press puts their money in places that'll move the political needle. They're not particularly interested in the fact that so-and-so shot themselves last night. I've had a friend very recently commit suicide, and uh, except for a handful of people who were very close to him and myself, no one even knew that happened. He just died. That's what happened. So uh, it's not even not newsworthy. It's not even repeatable. It's one of those things that I think Americans just sort of don't want to hear about, don't want to think about. Mental health certainly is a massive issue in the United States, especially amongst the veteran community. But we're also seeing a lot of the most depressed people politically tend to be male and tend to be Democrat. The most healthy people tend to have big families and tend to socialize a lot. They tend to survive longer, and it's probably because people check in on them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) frankly. So what are we doing as a society? Well, we're saying everybody stay at home. You know, everybody needs to wear a mask so you don't really talk to people. And everybody, you know, should, you know, use social media, which is not at all the same thing as a community. I don't care what anyone says. We've, we're basically driving people in the exact opposite direction of mental health. <clears throat> I'm not saying that there isn't a net benefit to making sure we're not spreading a disease, but I am saying the net effect is you're going to have a whole bunch of depressed people. And I, I actually told the governor of Texas the same um, mm. when that, when the first lockdowns were happening, like here are the ramifications of what you're, which I, I suspect fell on deaf ears. I'm sure he got a lot of advice, but my feeling is we have a health crisis, mental health crisis in the United States, but we also have a political nightmare, um, where if you say the Republicans are the party of the wealthy, you know, or the hyper wealthy, even then what does that make the Democrats? They're the party of the poor. And if you want to increase your user base, you need more poor people. And well, how do you get them? Well, you know, you make sure that the men end up in jail and then their kids are growing up in poverty and then they grow up and then they have offspring and they go to jail. And you have this massive population who just doesn't really have much in the way of money. And they're more much, by the way, not a little bit, much more likely to vote Democrat. Uh, poverty tends to push people more in that direction, except in the Appalachians, the sort of the Rust Belt, that 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 type of poverty tends to be more Republican. But it, there are indications, there are some st- statistics coming from the last election that the percentage of black males particularly had dropped to an all-time low voting for Democrat. They are switching, they were switching more to Republicans. Certainly the Latino men as well. It's not as clear cut as it was it before. Is, it is so I think it is changing. And then, changing, of course, yeah. we've got the gerrymandering and the changing of voter districts are all going to happen. I suppose there isn't, as you say, there isn't a, a, a clear answer in terms of how to address <laughs> address these systemic issues. Well, well, I, well, I do look at where lobbyists spend money. You know, I think that's, uh, <clears throat> I wrote a program many years ago now. They just went through all of the cigarette manufacturers, and I wanted to know who do they lobby and you know at what levels. 
and I will let you guess which ones. Which which one do you think? Out of curiosity, the the, the lobbyists lobby for mm-hmm. the cigarette manufacturers, Philip Morris, Altria's. Oh yeah, well it would be Philip Morris, surely. Yeah, but who do you think that they lobby? The Republicans or the Democrats? Oh. My assumption is it would probably be Republicans because it's for corporations, but maybe it's the Democrats. Wildly Democratic. Wildly. Um, Not entirely. Obviously, they spread a little bit of money around everywhere. And I'm sure there's lots of states where, you know, the only candidate running is the Republicans. So you need their vote, but almost entirely Democrat. And so if you look, well, just look, follow the money, follow, follow how they make their money. Well, how do they make their money? They make their money on poor people who smoke. So you need more poor people. And how do you get more poor people? Well, you vote the party of the poor who make more poor people. And so I'm not saying there's like this deep underbelly of this thing. Call it just how economics work. If you vote for a a party that is more likely to cause poverty, it doesn't really matter if it's you're trying to say, I want more poverty. What ends up happening is the economic incentives drive more poverty. So that's kind of been my biggest problem, I think, with the Democratic Party. Uh, by the way, I have a lot in common with them. In fact, I, I would have called myself a Democrat many years ago. So I've, I definitely understand both sides. I do not call myself a Republican, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. I think your audience might be surprised by that. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, my biggest problem with them is they seem to not have their eye on the ball with regard to economics. They're not trying to improve the economic well-being of the poor. That's not what they're there for. It seems like they just want to create more poor people. And that is very dangerous. <clears throat> the Republicans are all kinds of messed up for other reasons, but that's one thing they don't mess up. They want everyone to do at least the same, if not better. You know, They might not care about the poor, but they're not going to intentionally drive them into the ground where anybody who's middle class and up, they want to improve because they know that they're the part of the tax base. And that's who tends to vote for them as people who work. So there's, again, that weird perverse incentives. But I very much worry about thinking about this as a singular issue. I don't think it's one issue. I think it's millions of little things kind of percolating that are causing these little issues or you can't really nail it down to one thing. And this is the nuance I'm talking about. This, I, I wish it was as simple as just one small thing we could go tackle as a society and it would be over. It just isn't that simple. Uh, that's why I'm pro gun, but you know, I couldn't care. I couldn't give a rat's ass if you want to have an abortion. I don't, I don't care. So, so why don't you think there is an emergent party or group of individuals that are awakening to the reality that you're discussing? I don't think most people sit on the edges the way that politics is pulling them. I think, yeah, them, it might make for a good news cycle, but the reality, I think that most people probably do feel more centrist even if it's more left or right centrist, but it's centrist. So that's what isn't the there, race to the middle is all about after that primaries is over. Yeah. So isn't there an opportunity for a third way in America for a new party to emerge that does speak common sense, that does acknowledge the nuance, that does commit to actually that everyone should have a fair chance at an econ- econ- economic sort of middle class them or whatever we want to call it, that there's a that it isn't about keeping poor poor, that it isn't all about socialism and communism, and it, that it speaks common sense. Because I think most people would gravitate towards that, whether the news media would promote it. But we're living in a world where we should be able to get that type of message out to people. Are you hopeful that there might be groups of people? 
Well, <clears throat> they're called the Libertarian Party. I mean, that's probably the biggest middle center party we have-ish. Some people would call them extremists because they don't believe in government. But frankly, they're much more what the French referred to as like la liberté. You know, they're like the true, just you be free. You, you Government doesn't tell you what to do. You, you can do anything you want with your body, but you can also carry a gun. <laughs> and that's sort of the libertarian center where – they they sort of see both as kind of ridiculous. Like, you know, Jesus doesn't tell you what to do. You get to decide what you want, you know, like you're, you're sovereign. But to be sovereign, you need to take care of yourself because the government's not going to show up. I mean, they just, they're either that or they're going to do the wrong thing because they're going to shoot your dog, you know? <laughs> so if you ignore the Libertarian Party for a moment, which I think you need to, if you're going to have a sober conversation about this, because you have people like Vermin Supreme who wears a boot on his head and they're just, they're just a clown show. Um, I think that the major problem is the media would never truly embrace them because they're not, the, the media has this phrase calls that they use said, it says, if it bleeds, it leads. And so if it's not extreme, they're not going to push it out there, which means that they're, you're never going to get eyeballs on the center. You're only going to get eyeballs on the extreme rights and lefts like the David Dukes on the right or the AOCs on the left. Like these are, these are patently crazy ideas coming from people who should not have any job related to politics at all. And yet these are, these are becoming more and more mainstream. People are thinking of them as their ideas as good or even palatable. And, and frankly, they're, they, they just are not, and they're, they're not sound ideas based on reality or, or economics or whatever. So I think if you're going to do it, you have to do it more like that pack way where you incentivize the people to say less crazy things, but you give them so much more money to be less crazy on those extremes that they still win anyway. So you basically have to pour much more, like wildly more money into politics to drive those people on the sort of the fringes, on the inside fringes, as opposed to the outside fringes, more into the center. And I think that has some hope of working. Mm -hmm. And the lobbyists that I've spoken to seem to think that it has some hope of working. There's some other hopes where you can have a, a two-vote system as opposed to a singular vote system where you – I think this was pioneered by some politician. I'm spacing on his name at the moment. He lost a couple elections ago. Andrew Yang. That's who I was thinking of. I think he's the one who pioneered this. If not, he adopted it. A two-vote system where you vote for the person who you like the most. But you also cast a second vote for the person you like second most. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so it's a couple of European countries follow that system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that is something I think could – greatly bolster up the middle yeah yeah that would be interesting okay i read recently that elon musk who's everywhere at the moment in the in the news media ranked what he considered the three most existential risks being the falling birth rate his fears for artificial intelligence going wrong and the rise of religious extremism given that you've got this big picture and these nuanced conversations ongoing, and you have a plan of where you're going to be taking the Snake show and the topics you want to cover, what are the threats that you rank that worry you the most? There's a lot. Again, it's, not, it's very hard to narrow it down to three, but if I were, I would say probably number one would be the way in which advertising and journalism works together. Mm -hmm. That whole system of how journalists get paid is a enormous threat to society. Enormous threat. They, I cannot stress more how bad a job they are doing. And that is, that is, we should all be very, very nervous that the fact that we don't have 
nuanced political discourse as a regular diet in our reading on a day-to-day basis on social media or wherever we get our news. <clears throat> so that would probably what, be number one. Wasn't there um, an act passed in the 1980s when Reagan was in power that led to that, that led to the... Because there, there was a law that at one point in time, I believe, on, cable, on news channels that they had to give a balanced view on any subject. But once once the likes of CNN and Fox emerged, you then started to have that polarization. But there were, I need to find out and put it in the show notes. There was a lot. I'm not of aware of that in particular, mm-hmm. but what I am aware of is the rise of the online advertiser. And I am unfortunately one of the very first people who worked in that industry. Uh, I was employee 11 at ValueClick before they got bought by DoubleClick, which is before they got bought by. Google. Uh, so I know a lot about this and I understand my contribution to the thing that I am now discussing as a, as a horrible thing. And also I only lasted six months. I, I saw the ethical writing on the wall on that one. I think that the problem is right now, the only way for an advertiser to make money at all or a publisher to make money at all is to have the kind of content that is infinitely shareable and probably wrong because the more close it is to being wrong or like barely right, the more people are going to argue and the more they argue, the more they're going to reshare it. And then there's more clicks and now you have more advertising and suddenly their unprofitable business is suddenly profitable. And I have a lot of friends who work in this industry, by the way, a lot. And leaving aside, I mean, you had that great conversation as well with, was it Josh? About about advertising because oh, yes. yeah that was his background that he worked in there mm-hmm. and we all know there are so many flaws to the online advertising model and particularly just under the control of the likes of facebook and google and that whole industrial advertising complex it, it yeah i totally agree with you it is fucked yeah super fucked yeah so number two i guess would be Probably the ease at which synthetic biology has become something that you can do in your house. CRISPR. CRISPR and others. Basic things, uh, even more basic than that, where I just have, uh, I'm not going to explain how this works. Uh, anyway, it's, it's quite easy to create very weaponized things in your house with minimal tooling. Um, there was another person who came up with our team, I think it was a small team of people who came up with a uh, supercomputer model that basically took a known um, viral, viral outbreaks or whatever. And they said, okay, come up with every version of things that is, or sorry, it was a, it was a gas. I think it was like maybe VX gas, come up with every version of synthetic chemicals that fits these characteristics that we, that you think would be poisonous. And I gave them certain parameters and I realize this isn't biology, but very, very similar. And the system in one night, they didn't expect it to work at all, I think, or maybe give out like one or two answers. It came up with tens of thousands of potential new types of dangerous chemicals. And that's that's at the shallow end of the pool. That is very, very trivial to do compared to the synthetic biology part. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit more complicated. But it's not enough more complicated that I think that it won't be well within our lifetime that anyone with a basic understanding of biology and computers was able to do whatever they want, create designer weapons, uh, bioweapons. And the problem is, unlike a gas, a gas dissipates. You know, the solution to pollution is dilution. A viral outbreak, on the other hand, follows you around 
And if it's one of those things that doesn't kill you very fast, then it starts propagating all over the place. And uh, it's very easy to design it if you put in certain parameters. And I'm not going to get into too much more detail, but it would be quite easy for somebody like me to design something. And if it's quite easy for me, how much work is it going to be for the other person who has malicious intent as opposed to me who's just theorizing about the potential of different types of weapons? So that that keeps me up at night. That's a that's a real one. That's two. I know. I know. Yeah. I there there is so many. I guess I guess the next is the ease of which China came up with their Sesame Credit. That was not a I mean it took a while. It took, you know, 5 years or something. But it didn't take that long in the grand scheme of weaponry. And their ability to turn that into a weapon already just against their own people is amazing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing. In fact, it was already working before they even turned it all the way on because people knew it was coming and they knew they had to get their shit in order and they stopped publishing certain things. And Who was behind it? Was it the... It's a mixture of Alibaba, some bank, and I'm forgetting the bank's name, and, and Blizzard Entertainment, who makes the video games like World of Warcraft and that kind of stuff. So it's been fully gamified intentionally using the best minds in the world for building video games. Uh, and it is uh, the banking aspects of it allow them to keep track of where your money goes, etc. I mean, Jack Ma doesn't seem to be a, a malicious-minded individual. Do you think he was coerced by the CCP to, to be part of this? Almost undoubtedly. I forget the circumstance of which it happened, but he he didn't even make a bold claim against China about something. He, he made some sort of off-color comment that kind of could have been taken the other way and they slapped him very hard with sanctions. They're like, you're, you know, you're done kind of thing. If he wasn't directly involved, it's only because he just gently looked the other way. And um, yeah, every, everyone in China is now doing what they're supposed to be. In fact, it was kind of fascinating watching the Chinese lockdowns. I don't know if you're paying attention in to this. Shanghai, yeah. I've, I've been paying very close attention to it because it's sort of, um, it could go either way. It, it could turn into a revolution quite easily. Or that could be a very fast way for the Chinese military to identify the dissidents ahead of time. And so just go find them and round them up and take them out. Yeah, well, that takes us nicely to the the question of China. And, you know, if there's one thing, just I suppose linking our last question around what could bring America together, often what brings a nation together is an adversary. And although Russia is an adversary at the moment with what they're doing in Ukraine has traditionally been that China, there's no question, is probably a larger adversary in terms of the risk. And you, in one of your episodes, also talked about the, the risk of not China as a nation, as a people, but as a, uh, the CCP, the yes. Central Communist Party. Mm, correct. That was just a interesting... And, and to be super clear about that, I have no problem with Chinese individuals. Yeah. I think I think they're very hardworking, industrious, intelligent, fun, funny people. Great cuisine, great culture, nothing problem, no problems with that. It's just it's, the Communist it's Party. It's the party, yeah. Now, when you layer onto that and the, the multitude of risks, it's demographic time bomb because of the one-child policy that they are have a threat that they need to address. There's multiple layers to that related to economics and military. It's debt burden. That has an impact on the the strategic risk and threat to the US and to the West. Um, And military security, it's competence, clear competence and skills in network technology. You've mentioned already the social credit scores and the the social media manipulation, and it's creeping 
It's a million grains of sand, let alone what might be going on behind closed doors with AI. Um, all these things put together, if we weave that as a, an ultimate one bigger narrative and start to focus American population's attention to that risk, that might be a way of bringing people together. But leaving aside that and that being up to the politicians to do that and the policymakers, um, how do you sort of view this? And, you know, it does it, are there elements to it where you go, well, if this happens first, this is going to set off a sort of a trigger, a domino effect. Mm-hmm. So of all those issues, which one of them there would be the one that makes you go, this is one we've really got to watch out for, that that would then potentially take us into uncharted territory? Well, I mean, I think the dominoes are going down. They're being dropped right the second. I don't think this is a, a long-term thing. I think it's already happening. I mean, they need to have complete control over their population. That's being worked on right now. It's In fact, it is now rolled out. I think it went live, I think Jan 1 of last year, I think is when it went fully live. They have a direct loving relationship with Russia, which they need to keep intact. So... Some of that comes with foreign aid, including buying up all their oil for them. So that's just fueling the war effort at the moment, fueling the war effort and also switching the uh, the ruble to be the more dominant currency for switching away from the petrodollar. It means buying more military technology from its partners and building, sourcing its own, stealing a lot of intellectual property theft coming from China. Um, and that ultimately leads them to um, building up bigger and bigger chains of islands, um, the String of Pearls doctrine, mm-hmm. doctrine, where they're building a bunch of islands in the middle of the yeah, South China the Sea. South China Sea, exactly. And all of that is just prepping for what they believe will probably be the next step, which is that they're going to take Taiwan back to the mainland. It's gonna it's gonna be part of the communist fold, and uh, that's that ends a hundred year war. But doesn't that have huge ramifications? Given that the the semiconductor, the the rest of the West essentially America relies on, even just for its military hardware, comes out of Taiwan. That cannot happen. It would not be allowed to happen without. I agree in principle, and we also have we have varying different opinions on what the United States hovers between. We're going to be world police, and we're going to step into every political action, and you know take over and stop the bad guys, and you know play John Wayne. To we're not going to touch it; it's not our problem. Like <laughs> you know, and it really depends on who's in office. Yeah, I'm not a Trump supporter. And by any means, but if there's one thing that I think that he did do, he did grasp the Chinese nettle and acknowledge that there was an issue there. So if regardless of what happens in the midterms, let's just say 2024 comes and you start to see these dominoes continue to fall. I don't think whether it be a democratic, a democratic president, a Congress or Senate or whatever the composition is, it would allow that to go without some form of counteraction maybe and also maybe china has already set the groundwork and would make it virtually impossible for us to properly defend Mm -hmm. and we have slowly started divesting our um military and um i think we only have one icebreaker in the fleet right now which is crazy their navy will not necessarily surpass ours but in terms of fast boats and naval weaponry they will do 
quite well soon. Mm-hmm. If we were to get into a war today, I suspect we would probably destroy them pretty handily. But in 10 years, yeah. I seriously doubt it unless we step things up tremendously. And that's not even getting into the conversation around the strategic risk of hypersonic missiles. <laughs> which which probably- I, I can happily do as well. I know quite a bit about that. Yeah. Well, maybe just give a, a quick overview of what that risk is, because I think I think your other guest, Dr. Leon Vanston, um, expressed this quite clearly, that America has relied on its fleet of aircraft carriers, essentially floating bases, to, to dominate the seas, as, she, as you said, to be the world's policeman. But what what impact does hypersonic superiority in the missile space mean if the Chinese did have that dominance? Well, it would be bad. Um, The air defense typically uses supersonic missiles, but not hypersonic. So unless they can meet them midway and it's coming inbound, they're not going to catch them. So if it's a race to a target, they're not going to win that race. That means well, they can also fly lower. They have more kinetic energy and a bunch of other things that make them strategically extremely dangerous to defend against. Also, the way the air defense works, it's not particularly great at handling things that go that fast because it kind of look anomalous. They kind of look like it's a glitch and not so much a missile. <clears throat> you can also make them non-air breathing, so it's just truly a projectile, in which case they put off very little fingerprint. They can be quite small. You don't need a very large one, and they can absolutely penetrate the whole of a ship multiple times over. You know, these are the amount of energy these things put in. I mean, they'll go through, you know, five feet of solid rock. You know, they're going to go through your, you know, half a foot of steel, no problem. You know, it's a it's a very dangerous scenario that that gets presented, and what ends up happening is we need more of it. It's kind of similar to the AI thing, where you know, it's, we all want. No one to have nuclear weapons, but when when one person has it, then other people have to have it. Okay, well, we don't want people to have AI. Well, once one person has it, everyone has to have it. So everyone's got to work on it because everyone knows someone's going to get it. Same thing with hypersonics. It just keeps happening over and over again. And now everyone's got their hair on the biological trigger, their hair on the, the, what I call strange love, which is code that can take out anything on the internet as fast as you possibly can, or everyone's got their trigger on the hypersonic vehicles and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it only takes really one person to screw up, and we know that that does happen regularly for all at war to, you know, be a reality. Mm-hmm. Well, during COVID, I heard um, Jamie Metzel, who was an advisor to the Obama administration at times and a writer and written a number of books and a strategic advisor. Um, he gave this quote on, I think it was Singularity University, we're doing an event I was watching, and he, he used this quote from, quite funnily enough, communist political theorist, uh, theorist Antonio Gramsci, which has nothing to do with communism, but it's an it's a interesting quote, which is, the old world is dying, and the new world has not yet emerged, and in the twilight rise up monsters. Um, it does feel like, regardless of COVID, there's a, a, a confluence of factors happening that makes us feel like we really are at that, in the liminal space between the old world order and a new world order, whatever that becomes. You know, you've mentioned political polarization post-COVID, even even post-2008 and the economic ravaging effect that had on all sides of the US population, both Republican and Democrat, economically. 
and the knock-on effect that probably had on voting patterns and perceptions and lack of trust in political parties. Post-COVID, we've seen virtualization, as you said, masks, isolation, broadening economic disparity and other second and third order effects that have gone on from that. The continuing erosion of institutions you mentioned, the lack of trust in federal government, whether it be other institutions as well, advertising. Um, Let's not forget about uh, hyperinflation. uh, Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, which is ongoing and accelerating. The risk of the increased migrant flows are happening, not just Ukrainians. And that will continue to happen with climate, probably. But um, leaving aside even just Russia and Ukraine, there's a potential global risk of, of famine. If this is a time, and that's a time when... So the reason why Metzl mentioned this when he was talking about it in relation to COVID, he likened it to not 2008. He likened it to 1941 when America got into the war. And he said it was a time... That was when the New World Order, the pieces started to be put in place that led to the United Nations, that led to the post World War II political order and the redrawing of the the world map. If that is where we are at the moment, and it's a time when you want the visionaries to step forward, and World War could have gone a very different way. But if we are in that time, and there are for there have to be people right now that are stepping forward and stepping up to plan and create these new institutions. Do you see anyone out there that might be up for the task, or people that we should be looking to? I think there's a lot of people out there. I think there's so you're, com- you're confident that there's good no, people. No, 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 no. I'm not confident at all. Uh, but I do feel like there are a lot of good people. Um, they just don't know each other. Partly, they're all sort of in their own weird little silos. They're not thinking as broadly as they need to, and and probably because they just don't know how. You know, they're they're sort of stuck where they're at. I would love for people to create more specialized groups for dealing with bigger topics. And I, I believe it or not, I have attempted to do this multiple times. Well, that's what I was going to say. At Isn't least that three or four what times you're, now. You're, you're the, the, I'm forcing the issue of the podcast. Yeah. Since, since no one seems to be taking this seriously. I've tried multiple salons. I've tried what I call the cabal of smart people. And it just always falls down. Yeah. There's always one person who's insufferable and no one can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm that insufferable person. Who knows? But I think that there has got to be a way to you know, source these people in their unique domains of expertise. I, I have gone on to a couple of, you know, smart people groups where invite only, and, you know, you know, very weird, you know, evolutionary biologists and the secret service and Google and, you know, these people just show up in this room and, you know, hammer out what we should be doing, but they're all, it's usually with such a very specific thing in mind. It's like, how do we solve malware? It's like, come on. I mean, malware is one of hundreds and hundreds of problems to think about. In fact, now that you mentioned food insecurity, I think specifically water insecurity and to a slightly lesser extent food insecurity, it would probably be the, my actual number three. I don't think people understand how dangerous our water supply actually is and fragile. And also there's places like Iran, which is about to run out of water, whether they realize it or not. And then where do they go? What do they do after that? And it turns out that they're just particularly happy to start getting their nuclear program back in order. And I wonder why. Uh, and so I think that we don't really fully grok how bad these issues are uh, in our little silos. You know, you might be working on your, you know, little water project, but what you don't realize is about a third of the world is about to suffer some serious water insecurity. Yeah, look at South Africa as well. Yeah. 
It's close on zero day. Um, so you that is a a, a real opportunity. So we want to sort of try and leave listeners with a sense of optimism. Okay. So it falls on <laughs> That's people. That's not my job. <laughs> so it feels like people like you to coerce, coalesce, and create these environments that where these people can come together and start to going back to what you started with architect this new world order because that sounds like it's the biggest challenge that lies ahead for you from where you started and where your you believe your domain expertise is of saying right these are all the issues that we're facing let's not look at the three lines of code let's look at the the big picture right the question then is what's the sort of the minimum viable product to do that what would be a, a if you approach it with like test-driven development and said, right, let's, let's get together a handful of people and control that as a, let's say, a, looking at it from intelligent behavioral design and saying, right, this is what we're going to do. You're, you're approaching it like a piece you have of to. systems design. You absolutely have to. Yep. So you bring in probably a systems design thinker and some user experience experts, but also the domain experts where you could cross, cross-pollinate their thinking, but be managed by moderators like yourself, probably. You, you would, that, yeah. You need people in the middle because people are very, very, very smart. But I, I think of smart as two completely different things. By the way, just to be really clear about this, there's one type of smart where you don't know anybody in the world who knows more about this topic than you than this person. They're just brilliant, but they can't tie their shoelaces. You <laughs> know, they're just in every other way useless. And then you have the other kind of smart who can manage a million things all at once, but they they don't know nuclear physics or something. They, they don't know synthetic biology or some weird facet of something. Well, that's okay. That person and that person should get together yeah, because <laughs> you need both of them to make their ideas work. Mm-hmm. And that's why like guys like me, I like having a CEO other than myself because they can think more about what's going on in the market. They can talk to sales and mm. I don't care about that. I want to focus on this technology thing that I'm working on. It's very complicated, like very, very complicated. Um, so you need both kinds of intelligence. I like to back myself up and do a corner first. Start with something. Start with some knowledge that is rare and difficult to acquire. And from there, you can start building on it. So to answer your question, yes, you would need somebody like myself who is technical in my area of expertise and people like myself who are open-minded about all the other things that need to happen and combine those people. So maybe they're all in one person like I am and they have expertise in one very specific, nuanced, detailed area and also can hold a conversation or maybe they're completely separate people. So that is not something I could manage out on the outright. You just have to pick the best of the best, whatever that is. Um, if I were to choose like a handful of people, it would have to be somebody who's an evolutionary biologist, somebody who understands the long-term understanding of how things work, or somebody who really understands the ramifications, the outcome of whatever negative consequences of things. Because people do not think about the externalities. They do not think about the unintended consequences, and that is critical when you're implementing law. Uh, you need somebody who's an economist. If you don't understand the economic outcomes of what you're doing, you're probably going to fail. You're going to need somebody who understands the cultural impact of what's going on. So ideally, people who have an outside of a Western-centric view of the world at least can understand what's going on in China, uh, understand what's going on in Russia, understand what why we're seeing so much political division 
in in the middle of Africa, for instance, like the more sort of geographic understanding you have, I think the the more likely you are to have positive outcome. And then you need a political genius, somebody who can wrap it all up into a bowl, uh, a nice, nice ball and get it passed by whatever, whatever state, local, national or international places need to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Hmm. It's a big challenge. I think so too. Yeah. It doesn't really seem to be something that would fall on a typical institution like an Aspen Institute or even within the the purview of the United Nations. And you couldn't look to a a philanthropic organization to do it. You couldn't look to a a VC to do it. It's interesting. So it's a question in itself as to who would be who would be the catalysts? Maybe that's one to reflect on and have a conversation with on one of your podcasts. Absolutely. Before we get to the quick fire questions, I think I said at the beginning, it sounds like your dad giving you that book was a serendipitous moment. Aside from that, has there been any other part of your life where serendipity has been absolutely pivotal? So you said Jeremiah Grossman's name earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he's been the single most influential person in my career to date, other than maybe my dad, as you said. Um, if it hadn't been for a chance meeting with him in this one conference, I know for a fact that the internet would be a much more dangerous place than it is. He and I just, we were like peas and carrots. I said, I have this idea about how browsers could hack internal networks and I don't have time for it because I was super busy at eBay at the time. Like, what do you think? He's like, I actually, I think I could do that. And I'm like, great. If you can build it, we'll split credit because I just don't have time to manage this. He's like, great. So he actually built it in a completely different way than I thought he would. But we combined our knowledge and all of a sudden, all of these dominoes started falling. Like at one point, I was responsible for one third of all the web application vulnerabilities that came out at the time, top ranked web based vulnerabilities. Between the two of us, we were probably pushing about 50% of all new top ranked web vulnerabilities. And th- these things do have ratings, by the way. Um, and we have just done an enormous amount, I think, to push the, the entire industry forward in many different dimensions. Now everyone's starting to talk about cyber insurance. Well, if it hadn't been for Jeremiah and him thinking about this, that wouldn't have happened. Now people are starting to talking about asset management, understanding the external footprint of companies and what their, what the posture is. Well, if it hadn't have been for him telling me, Hey, Robert, we should probably get a copy of the internet. We probably wouldn't have gone down that path of building a tax service management and, and on and on. And he's just a very innovative person. Mm-hmm. And when I'm around very innovative people, even if it's not my idea, because he's a very, very intelligent guy, and sometimes we're my ideas, sometimes we're his. But when, when I hear some good idea, I just grab onto it. I'm like, oh. And sometimes I surprise him. I show up years later with an idea he came up with literally years ago. I'm like, I did it. There mm-hmm. it is. And he's just, his mind's blown. He's like, wow, I can't believe it. It's just it's kind of an off the cuff comment. I'm like, I know, I built it. Now it's done. Wow. And uh, so, yeah. Okay. Where is he now? Uh, he actually works with me at Tenable. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Good. We're so partners. We, can... we kind of travel in packs. So we can we can <laughs> we can sleep soundly and no, with, with optim- optimism. Not yet. <laughs> um, obviously, you've got a lot of work to do. Yet more solutions to come up with. What do you want your legacy to be? Well, if you'd asked me maybe ten years ago, I would say the thing I am most proud of is that uh, thing we talked about earlier: content security policy. And when I, when I'm feeling kind of down or I I just like, why am I doing this sort of, I put myself in harm's way a lot in this job. And I usually when I'm outside and I'm looking around and I'm explaining to somebody why I'm feeling that way, because it's usually a conversation I'll stop and I'll have this 
and I'll have this moment where I'll look out and I'll see somebody. I'm like, unfortunately, there's nobody to look at here, Mm -hmm. but imagine, uh, I'd say that person right there doesn't know me. They've never met me. They know nothing about me. They'll, they probably will never meet me. And yet I've made their life better. I've actually helped that person. I I know I've helped that person because I see them holding a cell phone. Uh, and on that cell phone is a browser and that browser is safer because of me. And that's, you know, there's two types of billionaires in the, in the world. There's one that just hoards a bunch of money and there's the other kind who's actually impacted a billion people. And that's why I feel my legacy will end up being, it may not take the form of a browser or a piece of code or whatever, but I think that I plan to leave the world in a way that is positive ultimately. Good. Yeah, I had one other question you mentioned a couple of times, if you don't mind going there. You said early on, when you were younger, in your your early stage, you had that period of depression. Why did you suffer from depression? I suspect it was a mix of incredibly bad nutrition on the biological side. I was on a no-fat diet thinking fat was bad back Uh when people thought fat was bad. Well, we all thought that, yeah. (laughs) So I probably wasn't eating enough, and I probably was eating not enough fat, and so that was bad for my brain chemistry. So if you want the biological reason, that's probably what that was happening. But I also was very unmotivated. I didn't have anything to live for. There was nothing really in my life. You know, just gone through a breakup, Uh and and I was just felt like, Security wasn't a job, so it wasn't like I was looking towards the future of being in security. There wasn't a job. It was more of a hobby, you know. So it was, I was basically staring down the barrel of, you know, sitting behind a computer terminal all day programming like ASICs on motherboards or something for Intel right. or, you know, HP Packard or whatever. I just did not see a future in which I was going to have very much fun or enjoy my life at all. And I was just like, why am I doing this? Why does this matter? Why am I getting up all day? Like, I should just stay in bed, you know? Not, not that I actually did that, but that was sort of where my brain was going. And I didn't, I didn't get the sense that there was a, th- there was ever going to be an end to it. It was just going to be another year of, you know, bullshit. People trying to tell me to learn Pascal Suter code on Macintosh Assembler. I'm like, why? Both those things are going to be out of date this year. <laughs> I'm like, what are we doing? Why are, why am I learning this stuff? As soon as I left school, I think my life finally opened up and I started seeing the prospects are in front of me. And I think the depression stayed with me for quite a while after that, but, but it was the echoes of it, not the initial onset. And I think I'm not necessarily one of those people who's just always depressed. I think some people are that. I think I'm depressed when I'm not doing something, when I'm just sitting there stagnant. And um, I actually almost wrote a book on happiness many years ago. And then I realized what I was actually experiencing wasn't so much happiness or let's put it this way. There's two types of depression. There's a type of depression that is I don't feel like I'm worth anything. It's a very, very common, it's the most common type of depression. And there's the other type is I don't care if I'm worth anything. And that is a much more dangerous type of depression for a guy like me. I'm not likely to feel like I'm not worth anything because I know I am. I know that there's companies who would hire me for a bunch of money. I know that I could go work for other nations if I wanted mm-hmm. to for some reason. I have lots and lots of options. But I, if I stop caring about those options, that is the beginning of the end. And yeah. So I managed to work myself out of feeling like that, where I felt like, well, it doesn't really matter if like people find worth in me or not. I- I'm happy being here. I'm just by myself as a silo. That got me out of that sensation. And I, and I did a whole bunch of other work to get myself happier, which we can get into if you want. But uh, ultimately, the net effect was I realized that the book I was writing was not a book 
on happiness. It was a book on the problems with success. Hmm. I was too successful. I actually reached the moon. I touched the sands of the moon and I held it in my hands. And then I stared back at the earth and went, shit, now what? Yeah. And that, that was a very vague, for me, that was a massive problem. Like I had nowhere left to go. Everything I wanted to learn, I had already learned. Every, everyone I wanted to meet within reason, I had already met. I got disillusioned with, with rock stars and stuff very early in life because I hung out with some of them very early in life. Just, I just didn't care. I was like, why don't, just don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. That's a big problem. So I have all kinds of things to live for now. Don't worry. Wow. Well, that sort of nihilistic phase has passed. But, yes, definitely. Okay. Ron, that said, quick five questions. What principles do you stand by? Well, I think I am a bit of a pragmatist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the greater good philosophy is almost always the one I live by, which some people find totally abhorrent. They're like, wait, someone dies over here to save a million people, but they died. I'm like, I know, <laughs> I know that happened. And so you'll see me, if you ever hear me talking about, yeah, 50 people will die over here, but then this great thing will happen. On the same vein, I'm very empathetic. I'm yeah. actually I'm probably one of the more empathetic people you might meet. I just know how to hold that all in. I've compartmentalized it and, um, I know people are getting raped, pillaged, and murdered all the time. I know that. I've helped put a lot of people in jail who's, who are doing those things. So I'm quite aware of it. I think back when I was at eBay, I, I worked in this particular department. It was all like the high priority, like most dangerous things going on. And, and at eBay, since it's so big and a lot of people put all kinds of stuff on there, it's always an emergency. There's always something horrible going on. So I'd have this stack of what's called P1 tickets, the most important, like the, the whole site's burning down, but it's always a stack of them. And so people would come over to that desk and they'd be freaking out and they're like, oh my God, this is like the worst thing ever. And they'd be like panicking and trying to hand this thing to me. And I'm like, yeah, great. And I like, I took it and I put it on top of the pile and then I'm like, okay, got it. And they look at me like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is a crazy thing. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. It's on the top of the pile. It'll get dealt with very next thing. I just got to finish this other thing. It's on my computer. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it won't get done. And I got to just finish it. And they're like, no, 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 but the site's burning down. I'm like, I know, that's why it's on the top of the <laughs> Like that, that's why it gets dealt with next. And after a while, like they would calm down. They go, oh, I see. You're not one of those people who gets emotional about these things. Like, not at all. And that's why you know it's going to get dealt with. I have a stack of things and they're all getting dealt with in the priority in which they matter. Yeah. They all say P1. Every one of them says P1. <laughs> I know that yours is really, really P1, but it doesn't matter, you know. And that, that's sort of how I live my life. Everything's always an emergency. Everything's always burning around. And I don't let myself get wrapped up into it emotionally, despite the fact that I might feel the emotion of the person on the other side. Okay. You've obviously had to make a lot of um, decisions in your life. What hard choices have you made that were very tough at the time, but in retrospect were the right ones? Two things come to mind off the top of my head, although I've had to make a lot of very, very tough decisions. One of which was calling out a researcher at Google, uh, a guy named Tavis Ormandy. Uh, He'd come out with a bug in Windows Help Center, and he had disclosed it immediately to the public internet instead of doing the normal thing that Google at the time advocated, which was disclose it carefully to the company and then let them have a chance to fix it. And then if they don't fix it, fine, release it. So he was an employee at Google, and so he had mentioned at one point that he had he had worked with this guy, El Cam Tuff, uh, Michael Zalewski, who also worked at Google. He was his boss. And so I said, well, should Google be doing this? You know, if, if not, then this guy should be fired. 
Or Google should change their policy to say that I, as a security researcher, get to do anything I want because clearly your security researchers aren't doing the thing that you demand that I do with you, right? I had a very adversarial, still have a very adversarial relationship with Google. And just, I, we do not jive well <laughs> for all kinds of reasons. But anyway, people took that to mean what I was saying is fire Tavis Ormandy. That was not what I was saying. I'm like, you have a conflict here. You either have to change your policy or get them to start adhering to a policy, one of the two, right? I don't care which, but you, it's not self-consistent. So I ended up posting this blog post and it absolutely blew up. Like it was enormous catastrophe and it was a tough decision, but it was the right one. Ultimately, what ended up happening is Google changed their policy. Now they have a new program in place called Project Zero. Uh, and now the internet is a little safer and disclosure is a little bit safer. And it was, I don't, I didn't get any credit for it at all. It was basically a big mess, but I think it was ultimately the right thing to do. The second one was during Hack the Pentagon, which is a program designed to allow hackers to break into unclassified and classified systems to identify whether there's vulnerabilities or not. Mm -hmm. It's a bug bounty program. Uh, I was asked to join it by three different people in the government. I said no three separate times. And then the last time they said, no, really, you kind of have to do it because we need you to do it for this other reason. And I'm like, fine, fine, fine. So I did it. In that process, I found a bug, which is unusual for me, I guess, to find just one bug. <laughs> but I got really tired of just finding one thing because they had only given me 21 IPs to go attack. And I'm like, this is stupid. What am I doing? Why am I spending any time on this whatsoever? Uh, and so then I uploaded 1.9 million things that I knew about them into the system because I was tired of this very shitty game that they were making me play. And then I started uploading all kinds of things like, you know, Minecraft servers running on the 10th fleet that were out of date and firewalls that weren't even made anymore and printers that were all over the place that were publicly accessible and on and on and on all this junk. And I was just, I was just making tickets just to screw with them. Mm -hmm. Like, ha ha ha, look at this. And just like trying to demonstrate to them how poorly they understand their footprint, right? But to the end of trying to get them to say, no, really, we need to think about, you need to think about security completely differently than you're thinking about it now. That was a very tough decision. I knew it would blow back in my face. I, I, this was not an accident. I did this on purpose. And I found a bunch of other bugs along the way, by the way. But anyway, the general almost rolled me up. They almost put me in jail because they because I went way out of bounds. Uh, they said, you, sh you should only hack these 21 IPs. Technically, I didn't hack anything. I just found a lot of bugs that were out there, publicly accessible. I did not actually break into any of those things. I, st I stopped at the door. Um, and the, the reason they didn't put me in jail is they wanted the Hack the Pentagon program to do well, presumably. And if you start putting hackers in jail during Hack the Pentagon, that probably is going to blow up in your face. And it's kind of like dropping, dropping a nuclear bomb on the Pentagon. Now every, and now it's open season. Now every hacker on earth gets to hack you for free. Uh, and I think they realize that. So at the end of this whole thing, what ended up happening is they changed their policies. They said that now hackers can break in, uh, do whatever you want, as long as you're not stealing data. And as long as you let them know, you're not going to go to jail. And so that was ultimately the right decision, despite the fact that it imperiled me greatly to do it. Wow. Yeah, that must mean something else, being confronted by a general. It was, uh, thankfully, ripping, uh, ripping thankfully there was multiple people between the general and I who talked him down before it got all the way to me. But I did hear it back-channeled from multiple high-level people people at the Pentagon that while they were drunk, that this had almost happened. <laughs> wow. <laughs>
So okay, where do you? I mean, this could be physical or it could be whatever. I interpret it any way you want. But where do you go to discover new ideas, or what do you do? Mostly, I just sit and think. Most of my best ideas are just things that have been rattling in my around in my head, and I haven't given them the space to be formed into a full real idea. They're sitting there, they're bugging me, and I just usually it's in the shower or some white noise, like driving but without any sound on, just you know, just the, kind of the weird kind of humming, and I'll just be thinking intensely about some topic, and it'll just click, and I go, uh-huh. oh, I figured it out. Like this is the problem with blah blah blah, and. And uh, so, yeah, I do most of the best thinking just internally, not reading, just thinking. But occasionally when I'm reading some something deeply technical written a long time ago, those are often some of the best idea generators, not the stuff that's written today, because that's always a little too uh, too specific. But the stuff that was written, you know, 20 years ago, oftentimes you'll go, oh, I bet this is how this whole thing happened. And I bet if I poke this thing all this would break and usually i'm right yeah fascinating um if you were told and perish a thought <laughs> you're told you've got six months to live and you had one problem that needed to be solved before you depart the planet what would that one problem be getting more eyes on this podcast yeah that's it mm. because that is my epitaph that is the, the that's my legacy so okay well, hopefully there'll be many, many more and many more ears and eyes on it. If you could invite anyone from present day that you know that are on your list of people that you want to get on the podcast and help you solve some of these bigger problems or for people you might look back to from history that you could bring back to help you create a better future, who would they be? Well, present, I've got a huge laundry list, so I'm, I'm probably not going to enumerate all of them, but it, but it, it's a long, long list mm, yeah. <laughs> of people I know and also people like one order of magnitude yeah. away from me. But historically, if I were to get how many people? Four. I would probably get Edward von Mises. Mm-hmm. I would probably get Robert Oppenheimer. I would probably get Alexander Hamilton and Mary Tape. Who's that? She was a Chinese immigrant who moved to the United States in, I'm going to get the date slightly wrong mm-hmm. here, but let call it like 1850, maybe 1840, somewhere in that range. And in the late 1800s, she had children at this point and she wanted to put them in school. She was unable to do that. Mm-hmm. And so she filed a court case against whatever school it was somewhere in San Francisco, I think. And managed to get them to say, okay, well, I guess we have to allow second generation children had to have equal access despite the fact that they're from some other race. So they made a a school, and I, th- I think they called them the Mongol school or something <laughs> horrible, right? Where they can go, it's separate, and that laid the groundwork for the separate but equal stuff that came, you know, many years later. And if it hadn't been for her... So, so she came over and she was, she basically lived in a brothel and worked there as, you know, something. I don't know. I had like 10, 11 years old, a pretty horrible story. This is, but this is, I think this is America's story. Mm-hmm. This is somebody who's fleeing a terrible situation, ends up in a terrible situation and finally kind of promotes themselves out of it for whatever, however that ends up happening. And it's probably a terrible story and then decides they're going to make their lives better and then confronts society. And society is pushing back. And instead of throwing bottles or yelling in the streets, she just takes him to court, mm-hmm. gets it overturned. And 
plays the game in the in the way the the way the game needs to play to actually be changed. I think we need more people with more perspective. If it hadn't been for the fact she was an immigrant, I probably wouldn't have picked her. But the fact that she can see the Chinese perspective and what a terrible, how bad must have been to leave China and work in a brothel as a better option, right? That's what that's what her life was, and yet she made something of herself. And I think if it hadn't been for her, we would probably be in a much worse situation in the United States. A little known person, but. Um, I like the fact that she's got perspective like Robert Oppenheimer. I like because he's a poet. He's a person who built the most dangerous weapon that we've ever had. And he was worried about it. It's not, he was excited by it. He's like, no, this is a, this is a very dangerous thing. And I need that perspective. I need Edwin von Mises. Cause he's like all this Keynesian economics is garbage. Like you don't know what you're talking about. That's just not how economics work. Just look at that person who changed their mind. What happened? How did that occur? You can see that you're not right just by talking to anybody. Um, and Hamilton is great because I need a political genius who can get stuff passed. I need everyone to get on board and I need somebody who's so forward thinking that he can look at all the world building and all the startups of all the different ways you can build a, a country and decide they're all broken in whatever way they're broken and build something that was as successful as the United States. But do it from today with all the current knowledge that you'd have about how society works. I think you'd be brilliant to have in a room. There's just no one who would know better how to build something like that. Yeah. Wonderful answer. Is there a question no one asks you that you wish they would? How can I help? Yeah. No. Well, I think more people will be asking you that in the future <laughs> after the podcast. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. Lots of people have got ambitions. A young, they might be about to study I've got a dream, a goal, but being told, ah, you'll never do it, it's impossible. What would your advice be to them? Well, first, make sure it is actually not impossible. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people do have very bad ideas out there. This is one thing that actually drives me crazy. Is like, everyone's like, oh, there's no bad ideas. No, there's tons of them. They're freaking everywhere. Like, you do not have to go very far. Just go on social media and start scrolling. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely full of them. But to answer your question, if it's an idea that actually holds merit and you know it's true, or at least you're, you strongly suspect it's true, and the people who are naysaying just aren't hearing you properly, they just don't know, they're not willing to hear you out for your ideas, I would say you have to be very careful with ideas like that because usually they're dangerous ideas because someone's economically disincented to let it fly. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to encounter an enormous amount of stiff opposition and it's going to be really rough. Your life is going to be a mess. So choose that life. Don't fall into that life. Decide you want to do it and then do it. But if you, if you just stumble into a good idea and then stumble into, in, into, you know, the good graces of a VC who happens to give you money and then you find out that everyone hates this idea, you're, you're in a you're in a world of hurt and you think you're going to live on easy, easy street you're just going to be miserable and your company will probably fold i think that most people need to spend more time thinking about does the market appreciate your idea when you do it when you ask them pointedly like if you go and ask somebody like would you buy my idea over here or let's say it's an economic idea like start asking other you know people business people like if xyz policy were in place how would that affect you? You know, mm -hmm. would you sell more? Would you sell less? Would you oppose it or would you approve it? And why? And like, 
which department would I talk to? Would it be most improved or most hated? And how can I work with them and try to make it happen? People just aren't spending enough time on that type of stuff, I think. Okay. Fun last couple of questions. Um, a recent TV series that you might have seen or a film that someone hasn't seen that they definitely should? I think it's a it's a bit of a difficult film to find. Unfortunately, you might even have to buy it, is The American Jihadist. And there's two of them. There's one that is not the one I'm talking about. And then there's the one that's hard to find. And uh, the one that's hard to find is a, a story about a American, African-American man who ends up being brought into a lot of different conflicts. Now, it got a terrible reviews on IMDb, but uh. I think it is a really interesting view into the world of somebody who wanted to be a good American citizen, was disenfranchised when he joined the military, found out that he's good at killing people, and went through this weird psychological shift when he came back on American soil where he was he was a man with very little useful skills mm-hmm. and he did not like the people around him he thought they were pious he wanted to become a, more of a, a person protecting people and he just saw his brethren killing each other he didn't feel safe walking home at school so he he fully embraced jihadism and um he's been on the counter uh, the opposing side of almost every American conflict uh, since the Korean War. Uh, oh, wow. very, it's a very, very interesting documentary. Wow. Incredible. So it's a true story. It's a true story, very one-sided uh, if you look at IMDb. But I think, I think I did not get that impression. I did not walk away from him thinking he was, it was an uncharitable to him in his uh-huh. life. Obviously... It, I think they were trying to make a point, but yeah. I don't think it was a point that he's a bad person. It's more like this is what happens to people uh, in these extraordinary well, situations. It must be quite common. Soldiers so coming back disenfranchised and looking and thinking, what did I fight for? Mm-hmm. And what was I fighting for? And what do I do with all this skill? Because you learn a tremendous amount in the military, despite what people think about jarheads or yeah. crayon eaters or whatever. These are these are highly skilled, very trained enemy mm-hmm. combatants that have nothing to do. Yeah, which is why going back to your point about suicides mm-hmm. and veterans, what book should someone read? Well, I am quite dyslexic, so I don't really read books very often. But one of the books that I did manage to get through and I found it almost unnerving was So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Mm-hmm. And it was a book... I think it's John Ronson, I believe, wrote it. And he basically jumps into the shoes of a bunch of different people who have been shamed, like the people who did the dongle gate or the woman who said, I'm going to Africa, I hope I don't get AIDS, and a bunch of different versions of that. I've actually met a number of people who've gone through this, Mm -hmm. and I'm ashamed to say I have shamed people in the past. And I, when I read that book, it gave me a lot of pause. I'm like, I don't, oh, it's starting to thunder outside. Rains in Texas. But it gave me a lot of pause. I, I really realized that I was, I was seriously part of the problem. And, and me, a guy like me is a very weaponized version of, of a normal person who could do this, right? Yeah. And so I decided at that point I needed to be way more careful with how I utilized my talents and capabilities when I'm dealing with people online and be much more careful and quiet and give them an opportunity to hear my voice before it gets loud. 
Wow. Interesting you say you're dyslexic. That's why I gave up on reading paper books and I just do Audible all the time oh, now. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah I just I'm ter- I read things and I go... I, I see a news headline and I, it's a completely different word or yeah. line. Yeah. And I have to look at it three times. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, when we were starting this before before you started, you said, uh, I, I might screw this up. I might have to read this a couple of times. And Yeah, because I'll look at things and just things just get mixed up and I'm in there. Yeah, it takes it's me, weird. What, but I think it's a bit of a superpower. And I've actually read this somewhere else, read, actually did read it, where it's kind of what ends up happening is people who are very dyslexic end up being good at other things. For instance, navigating social situations, because you have to help people learn your ideas so they can implement them because you're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or go read this thing for me and digest it and bring it back because I can't do it. It just takes me too long. So you get really good at delegating and working with people. So I think it's a superpower, not as much of a detriment as you might yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a feature and a bug at the same time. <laughs> sort of. Um, I did also leave out the other question. I have, but I put it in for fun because I like to ask it. Is Chris said I'm not answering that. Which was if you're out for a karaoke night in Austin, which what's your song? It's a here I go again on my own, going down the only road I ever known. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, a yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> Good. Because I feel like uh, oftentimes I, I sing it semi-ironically because yeah. uh, <laughs> sometimes uh, I talk about programming languages that no one uses anymore, but I still use. And, but I also kind of semi-seriously often feel like I'm, I am the Calvary and I'm the only one showing up. Uh-huh. Okay. Before I ask you the last question, do you, in terms of cyber attacks... Do, does you do you worry about that? You mean for, against myself? Uh, no, just um, it's one thing we talked about all the other risks, but we didn't really touch on things like um, when the take. It just made me think about it now. When you take down the grid and you take out the the electromagnetic one, what uh, you can do that that can. Yeah, there, there's like EMP. Yeah. Yeah, that that is a uh, is a risk, but not a particularly big one. And we would be able to rebuild yeah. quicker than I think a lot of doomsdayers want you to believe. But cyber is, I mean, our adversaries need the internet to be up too. You know, that's what I was thinking. It seems cyber seems a bit like mad mutually assured destruction. But absolutely, enemy combatants are using the internet to communicate, to coordinate, and to destroy. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay, but hopefully there are good people like you working on this side to combat that. And final question, who should we interview next? Well, it's um, a good question. I I really enjoy, out of all the podcasts, the one I was most nervous about and most enjoyed, I think, personally, was the one I had with Morgan Worsler. And the reason for it is Morgan is a genius. Um, some people find him insufferable, uh, but that doesn't disqualify him as being a genius. He's very political, very right-leaning, although he does have some tendency to switch to the left depending on certain issues. He is... When I interviewed him, the the one comment I got back uh, that I thought was the best was, it's kind of like living your entire life only seeing one side of a pair of dice. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, one day you pick it up and turn it over. You're like, oh my gosh, there's other numbers on the other side of this? Like, I had no idea... Now, you can disagree with him all you want, but he represents the line of thinking that is completely missing from the left, that 
is unfortunately or fortunately definitely being listened to by the people on mm-hmm. the right yeah. and not people that you would normally interact with on the right mm-hmm. not and not the people showing up at the David Duke convention mm-hmm. i'm talking about the people who actually get things done yeah. the real people who actually get policy made so if you're not paying attention to morgan you probably don't know what's coming down the pipe Excellent. Well, once this goes live, I'll send you an email asking you to make an introduction. I'd be happy to, if he'll do it. You know, if he'll do it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is he based here? He is in Austin. Okay. Let's see. Let's see. Roll the dice. <laughs> well, um, that's three hours and ten minutes. Perfect. Um, equals my longest ever interview. Um, so that's, that's a marathon. All right. So thank you for that. No no loo breaks either. So that <laughs> no, was a, something yet. else. And a little bit of interruption. <laughs> we'll hopefully get rid of that in the edit. Yeah. Well, Robert... Thank you, our snake. Thank you very, very much for your Thank time, you for, for your thoughtful, intelligent, well-researched imparting of your knowledge, your experience, your insights. I think this is going to be a great episode. I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download, or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This is a Fabrica Collective production, so have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network.